Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for episode 175. We're recording this on Sunday, May 15th, 2022, at 3 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. We've got Todd. We've got Zach. How's it going, guys? Absolutely fantastic. The Boston Celtics are going to win game seven. My team, they're winning big. And uh, it's 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 all good here. We're all taking out here. the defending no. cha- defending champs. I mean, I thought we'd have to push back this podcast, but they're winning so big <sighs> that I feel comfortable just kind of uh, assuming they're going to hold on. Well, I mean, it, it could be worse. You could be the Cincinnati Reds who threw a no hitter today and lost. Wow, I did not see that. Yep, they lost one nothing in a no hitter. Nice. Only the Reds. Only the Reds. Can Joe Burrow be starting pitcher for them, too? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe. Todd, anything interesting with you? Not really. I just think it's funny that you quoted Star Wars, and I turned it to the other Game 7, but it's in the middle of Empire Strikes Back on that channel. So, <laughs> it's like you planned that. It, it, I think... I think... It's destiny. It's destiny. There we go. All right. Well, uh, let's get into this and uh, make sure you're subscribing, rating, reviewing all over the place, wherever you find your podcast. Just download all of the podcast apps, subscribe on all of the podcast apps and uh, rate us five stars on all of them. It, 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 it all helps. It all helps. It really does. I did find out that you can't rate something without listening to an episode. Oh, interesting. Interesting. All right. So listen to episodes and then rate us. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So Terry, kind of going back from last week, did you ever get to watch Mark Ryland's golf preview? No, I haven't seen it yet. I saw oh, a, dang. I saw a picture of it. See, I saw, I saw the Olivia Wilde preview today. <laughs> that was the first time oh. I'd seen it because you had mentioned that last week. That yeah, looks yeah. exciting, like every ripoff of the Sefford Wives. But okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and no, I I saw I saw a still image from it, but I haven't seen the the trailer yet. I'm gonna have to look that one up. I forgot about that. Well, Zach, what are you drinking? It looks like a, a standard. I non wine standard coffee is for closers, and I'm definitely not a closer, so I didn't go with it. I went with a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, old old reliable. Very nice, very nice. Uh, Todd. Uh, well, Shelly orders scotch, so I'm drinking some. Okirkowin Talk Duggan's Dew Blended Scotch Whiskey. 86.8 proof. So nice. The the real question is, did you order that scotch from a Chinese restaurant? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Chinks? <laughs> All right. Uh so my beer, uh, this is from so I got this at Ridgewalker. It's from Hop Capital Brewing, which is like their their uh sister brewery. Uh, which is out of Yakima, Washington. This is their their orange Julius hazy IPA. Uh, it's actually really good. It's got it tastes like that that orange and vanilla, but then it's got the 
just the smoothness of a hazy on top of it. It's it's a really good beer. So so cheers. Cheers. That's like your that sounds like a summer gimmicky beer with hops. Hops, exactly. <laughs> hops in it. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's look at what we've been watching. And for that, we're gonna start with Todd. All right, I watched a movie that came out this year. Actually, it debuted at Toronto last year. It's called Montana Story, directed by David Siegel and Scott McGeehy. And uh, it stars Haley Lou Richardson and Owen Teague and their brother and sister. And they were returning to their childhood ranch after, like, years away. They're there to take care of their dying father. And they sort of get thrust into this uh, series of emotional scenes uh, and uh, uncovering some secrets of their family's past. These types of stories are always pretty good. And this one does like squarely plant you in this atmosphere and let you really just like soak in the, like, the beautiful scenery of Montana and like these outstanding performances. All Haley Lou Richardson movies kind of do feel the same, but I think she, this is one of her best performances and she's just a really naturalistic performer. And I don't know, it kind of caught me off guard. Uh, the, the two leads are really good. They're dealing with a lot of grief and blame and suffering. It's just a really good indie. It doesn't technically get released in theaters until next or this next Friday, but definitely if you can go see it, it's de- way better than suffering through another Marvel movie or whatever the hell else is out right now. It's a it's a very solid three star movie. Very nice, very yeah, nice. Yeah, I've been excited about this movie for a while. Well, I have to ask, how, how did you see it? I mean, it's not out yet. Is this one of your elite screeners because you're yeah, a yeah, member of the uh, from uh, elite guild because you're better than all of us? You think you're better than me? Um. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see it. I really like Haley Lou Richardson. I enjoy I especially enjoy Columbus. But uh, I did see the trailer for it. It 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 seems like the most Kelly Reichert non Kelly Reichert movie ever made. Um and I'm a little surprised there's like is it involves horses, right? Yes, there are horses. It's a range. Nice. Do you feel like there's been, I mean, now with Nope coming out, I feel like this has been the golden era for horse movies the last, like, you know, five years or so. I mean, Starting Concrete Cowboy, writer. you got that one about the criminal who rehabilitated with horses, and then you got your your Irish movie about horses. I mean, this is a great era for horses. Where does this rank in the echelon of horse, horse movies? I know you weren't prepared for this question. I mean... I, like I said, it's a really solid movie, but it's not it's not up to the standard of, of, like I said, the writer would be the number one, right? Oh, I think so. I think that's fair to say. But um, it's definitely worth checking out. And yes, I, I do agree. There are there are a lot of like new age uh, Western horse kind of kind of things going on right now, which is which is cool. And that probably is mostly due to Yellowstone being like the biggest hit on cable. Uh, what was the one we watched last year? Was it Concrete Cowboy? With the Driselba, yes, yeah. But then, and then, but then, there was the one with the criminal who rehabilitates with horses that I believe you liked, Todd, and I'd not like as much. With I think it was Matthias Schoenertz. Oh yeah, Mustang. Mustang, yeah, that's it. Or the Mustang, one of the yeah, two. I think it was just Mustang. There, yeah. there was a foreign movie called Mustang or the Mustang. It was the other one. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Ford v Ferrari. <laughs> I, I like how Todd Todd's better than us simply because he pays the yearly dues to be a member of Film Independent. It's worth it just for the screeners. It really is. Like, I I I cannot recommend that enough. I mean, if I had time to watch more than I already watch, then I would I would consider. But 
Do you have a screener of the Cronenberg movie? Because then that would be worth it. No, but that's also making its world premiere. <laughs> like, not not yet. So, this this movie has been a thing since Toronto <laughs> Black Horizon. All right. Moving on. I'll go next. So, my... Uh... My Oscar anniversary watch is an animated nominee from 10 years ago in 2012. Uh, I know it's one Todd is a big fan of. It is Paranorman. Nice. Uh, yes. Another Leica movie. Um, I hadn't seen any Leica movies until Todd had me watch Kubo last year, which was amazing. And this is another one that does not disappoint. So uh, Norman is voiced by now Oscar nominated Cody Smith McBee. Uh, who wanders around town and can see ghosts everywhere. He sees dead people. And uh, they talk to him as a, and he's, they're really the only people that do talk to him. He's kind of a, a loner and outsider. Um, and he lives in this Massachusetts town where they uh, really honor and almost like idolize this witch that they, uh, they killed back in the 1600s as a part of the whole uh, witch trial thing. And it's the, like the 300th anniversary of, of her execution and the, uh, and zombies start rising up from the ground and, uh, and the witch starts coming back and, and causing chaos. <clears throat> and he finds out from his crazy uncle voiced by John Goodman that he is the only one that can stop it because he is the only one that can actually see the ghosts and talk to the ghosts. Uh, it is, it's a really cool story about, uh, about belonging, about knowing your purpose, uh, about finding who you are. Uh, and it's just kind of a fun, a fun kooky story to begin with, or to, to, on top of all that, you've got a great, acting uh voice acting group here you've got anna kendrick voicing the sister uh christopher mintz plus voices the uh the bully casey affleck voices uh this like buff like friend or brother friend's brother the parents are voiced by leslie mann and jeff garland i mean it, it's a great cast uh the the uh drama teacher is voiced by alex borstein uh, it, it's a lot of fun it's a great, yeah, great actors involved, great story. Uh, it, it's it's one of the more enjoyable uh, animated movies I've seen as a part of this. Three and a half stars for Paranorman. I, it was really funny. I watched this with my kids. And I sit them down. We're like, all right, we're going to watch this movie. And then it starts up. And I'm like, okay, this might be a little scarier than I was anticipating it being. And it's a PG movie. But it's, it, I mean, it's zombies and all this stuff. And arms falling off and all this stuff. Like, okay, I'm gonna kind of pay attention to see if they get too scared. And um, and it was it's funny. My son watches movies like I watch movies. He he sits there and like doesn't move and takes in every single detail of what's going on. My daughter watches movies the way my wife watches movies. She sat there the whole time saying, Who's that? Why is this happening? Who's over there? What's going on here? The whole time. The whole time she's just yelling and screaming and talking through externally processing the entire movie. So I'm watching them, seeing if it's going to be too too uh, scary or too upsetting for them. And then at one point, Atticus just goes, <laughs> that zombie just got hit by a car. And that's when I knew that uh, our kids are not traumatizable. So uh, 
I mean, they, they can pretty much take anything. So, uh, so they, they love the movie. Uh, our, our little one, she's three at one point, she knows when she's supposed to be scared, but she really doesn't get scared. Um, at one point she like went and like grabbed my wife around the neck and was screaming, but she had this huge smile on her face the whole time. Like, ah! having a blast. So yeah, my kids can't be traumatized. I learned that. And, uh, this is a really good movie and they've been begging to watch it again ever since we watched it early on in the week. So Three and a half stars for Paranorman. Worth the watch. That was a great story. And yeah, I mean, Paranorman is is awesome. That was my number one animated movie that year. It was a great year for animation, honestly. And we get like a second tier Pixar movie that wins best animated feature. But Paranorman, Frank and Weenie, Wreck-It Ralph. I know you like A Cat in Paris a lot. Like it was a great year for animation. And, mm-hmm. and Par- Paranorman's just, it looks original. I think it's the best uh, animation that, uh, that Leica has done. It, it looks amazing. It's a great movie. Have you seen it yet, Zach? I have not seen it. But you also live like across the street from Leica, so it's a little bit more unacceptable that you hadn't seen it up to this point. Very true. Very true. You've seen the Are... one with the big puppet, right? No. What's the... I've, o- I've only seen Kubo and Paranorman. That's, Those that's it. Like Kubo... like movies is, isn't Kubo and the two strings in that with the puppet? Oh, the maybe, puppet? It, maybe it is. I mean, it is what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, Zach. I, I do want to add something because I yeah. like that story. I also have a se- somewhat related story, if you can excuse this digression a little bit. So my wife and I don't have kids, but we do have friends uh, who have kids. And uh, one of them came down with COVID. And so they knew that, that uh, I'm a big movie fan. So they said, well, you know, our daughter has COVID. Uh, she's, you know, eight years old or whatever. Can you suggest some movies for her? Well, first of all, we know it's a, that's a horrible idea because <laughs> I don't own any kids movies. Uh, but I did suggest, uh, I did give them some of my DVDs that are the closest thing I have to kids' movies. And I and here, I wrote them down which ones I gave them. The Scent of Green Papaya, great Vietnamese movie. Uh, Children of Heaven. Uh, uh, La the Push, Small Change, the Truffaut film. Fly Away Home, which actually is a kids' movie. Great kids' movie. Zazie Don La Metro. And Celine Sciamma's Tomboy. Do you think this kid is going to be like traumatized or never want to watch french movies again or just angry and upset or probably most likely fall asleep and just not care yes all of those i mean if if it if it makes the kid fall asleep that might be the best thing if if she's got covid i mean that's true you you just gave a whole bunch of lullabies to you didn't you didn't give like the man in the moon or something like one of the movies you really love no, I mean that's a you know I this this kid is too young to uh, you know have that kind of job. I, I want movies that expand their mind, you know, like like Fly Away Home. I mean, you know, you got Jeff Daniels as an environmentalist, uh, you know, stepdad, and you got to fly the geese back home. And I believe Adam gave that movie one and a half stars, which really impacts what I feel about Adam. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, you want to open their mind as children, right? I I don't know. I, I yeah I take the Doctor Hill philosophy. Doctor Hill, shout out, fan of the show, I'm sure. When uh, he always t- told the story of us in college about how he uh, took his eight year old to go see Gandhi, which I really appreciated. I mean, that's exactly the the, the the move that I would make. Well, there you go, there you go. Oh, okay. The movie. Well, that Zach, I did what did you movie. watch? Yeah, a movie I also would take my kid to. Uh, Happening, the new uh, French movie by uh, the uh, the the. French director Audrey Diwan. And uh, of course, this movie uh, has, um, you know, 
perfect coinciding with the heinous uh, leaked ruling by the Supreme Court this past week about uh, abortion. The movie tells the story. It takes place in 1963 in France, and it stars uh, Anna Maria Vartolomé, I think is her name, and she plays Anne, and she's a university student. And of course, in 1963 France, uh, you know, abortion was not only um, forbidden, it was also outlawed. And so uh, this young woman gets into a circumstance where she finds that she's pregnant. Um, she tries to reach out for help. And even though there are people around her who are sympathetic toward her and maybe even believe that abortion is uh, justified um, and not immoral, uh, they cannot help her because they are afraid that they will be arrested and imprisoned. Um, it even gets to the point they talk a little bit about in the movie how if a woman uh, goes to the hospital and, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, she could be arrested upon, uh, the, you know, attempted delivery. Uh, it's, it's a pretty uh, horrible circumstance that this young woman finds herself in. Um, and so she kind of has to go through backdoor channel a bit. She tries to talk to other people in her class. You know, she can't come out right and say that she's seeking uh, an abortion because, uh, you know, these people, including doctors, might turn her in. Um, finally, and I won't go into too much detail, but she is able to make connections uh, with, again, this sort of underground network. And, you know, it's hard to watch the movie and not think about, you know, it takes place in the past in France, but it might also be the future of America. Without getting into too much proselytizing, I'm making my politics na nakedly clear. But I do, you know, you have to, is the movie uh, good because it, it came out this week or is it good because it's timeless? I believe it is the latter. I think this movie is extraordinary. It is like a ticking clock. The movie uh, kind of shows, you know, week by week what happens to her. This is a, a woman who is um, strong-willed and motivated to graduate. She's on the cusp of graduating from college. She doesn't quite know what she wants to do in her life, but she she knows that a baby in motherhood is not in her immediate uh, future plans. I think the way that this director, Audrey Duan, handles this material is is fantastic. Uh, it's uh, you know it, it, it's there's no proselytizing, there's no great speeches, there's no great epiphanies, there's no great plot changes or surprises midway through. There's no Deus ex machina. It's just the reality of what many many women in France and around the world must have gone through. Uh, it is painful to watch. It's very uncomfortable to watch at times. It's a pretty graphic movie, uh, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. And uh, again, it it supersedes the events that are going around us in this country as as significant as they are, and as as aware that everybody should be of of them, uh, because this movie is is brilliantly acted, brilliantly conceived. And uh, everybody should make a chance to see it. It did win the grand prize at Venice last year, beating out some other big players. So it's not just that this is a sort of film de jour of the moment. It's actually a really well done movie. And I give it four stars. It's my number one of the year. And I'd be pretty shocked if it doesn't make an appearance on my top 10 list at the end of the year. Second straight week, you have a, you have the number one movie of the year that you're, uh, that you're toting. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and again, Vortex is a great movie, too. But uh, this movie, which is about an hour shorter than Vortex, is more immediate and in some ways more graphic than Vortex. And, uh, you know, just just give me a French movie. Why not? Let's just get I, I you know, we don't need American movies. We don't need American wines. Just if everything French. You know, I'm a Francophile. Uh, would that really make life significantly worse? I, I don't think so. But uh, in all seriousness, this is this is a really great movie. I, I think the main performance in it, Anna Maria, Anna Maria Volatolny is awesome in it. I think one way that's a little bit different than like Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which was my number one a couple years ago, is uh, that movie was about a partnership and friendship and people who are allies 
in this movie, she is all by herself and there is no one who is willing to ally themselves with her because of fear of, of, of prosecution. So it's really <laughs> heartbreaking to watch and, and it's pretty pretty uncomfortable, but it's it's a brilliantly told movie and I can't can't recommend it high, highly enough. Awesome. And that, that's one that you're going to have to go go out and try and find because it's not very, very widely released right now, right? Well, you know, what's funny about it. I saw it at a Regal Theater in, in Topeka. Oh. So it, it, it is getting and, I, you know, I, I feel like maybe in part due to you know what's what's happened in our country the last couple of weeks. And it is a fairly high profile film coming out of Venice. But, um, you know, it's a movie that I think speaks uh, universally. And so uh, even if you're not a huge fan of subtitles, even if you feel like French movies are too artsy, whatever, uh, this is a movie that I think, again, transcends those sort of barriers and is a very necessary and important watch uh, for everybody, right? right now real Topeka people man real Topeka there were actually people in the Topeka theater that I saw and it was pretty remarkable and now no they weren't protesters either very nice very nice cool all right so that's what we've been watching and now I don't know if we're ready for this it's time to get into our featured review we have one featured review and then we have a deep dive which uh I think is going to be much more enjoyable but let's talk about our featured review which is uh, the uh, the main movie that came out this week. It's in theaters right now. It is also on Peacock. It is Firestarter. She's not a robot, Annie. She's a little girl. With little girl emotions, which are wildly unpredictable. Charlie? She just has to shove it down and keep it hidden. Our responsibility is getting her ready. Our responsibility is to protect her. Charlie? If they catch her, they're going to put her in a cage. Charlie? Test on her for the rest of her life. We'll never see her again. I'll go ahead and start this one off. Uh, this is based on a Stephen King novel. Uh, it is the second iteration of Firestarter. The original came out in 1984, and uh, I don't know if either of you have seen the original Firestarter movie, but I just was looking it up. Listen to this cast. So Drew Barrymore is the main character. And then you've got David Keith, Heather Locklear, Martin Sheen, George C. Scott, Art Carney, Louise Fletcher. Yeah. I mean, that's a... That's a banger. That is a humdinger of a cast for the 80s. And and so we get the... Uh, I, I mean, you could call it a remake. You could call it just another, another interpretation of the original story from the Stephen King novel. Uh, but in this one, the main character is played by Ryan Kira Armstrong, and uh, she plays Charlie, the daughter of two exceptional uh, parents, played by Zac Efron and Sidney Lemon, who uh, were a part of some governmental experimentation or just science experimentation and have some special powers. And their child has even greater powers. And it is uh, her dealing with the fact that she is. She doesn't fit in. Um, she is. They're also being chased by this uh, government agency as they're trying to to hunt them down so they can study and research uh, their test subjects and especially the offspring of their test subjects. Uh, and kind of chaos ensues from there. Um, we we were texting earlier on this week of do we actually want to watch this because this movie got absolutely horrible reviews. I'm looking at. The IMDb page, IMDb page here, it's got a 4.6 on IMDb. It's got a 32 Metacritic score. Um, it, it's been pretty universally destroyed. Um, and I will say this about it. It's not 
horrible, but it's not good. Um, it, it, it the the opening like twenty to thirty minutes <clears throat> as it sets everything up is pretty bad. Uh, it, it doesn't really know how to set up what it's doing. The performances in those in those first twenty to thirty minutes don't work. Um, the way the scenes are written and put together just is boring and bland and you don't know what is going on. Uh, however, I will say like the last half hour to 45 minutes, it finds a little bit of a groove that is kind of interesting and at least more watchable as it really starts to focus in on the relationship between uh, the daughter and her father. Um, so there's some redeeming quality. I could see this being a movie that, in uh, you know five ten years from now is is this movie that uh, is kind of watched as being it becomes this cult classic of awesomely bad movies, um, but uh, like I said, it's it doesn't really redeem it that much. I'm giving it two stars, a very very generous two stars because like I said, I feel like some things actually kind of work in the second half, um, but it, it's still it's it's it it starts kind of boring and it kind of goes all sorts of different directions from there so two stars from me and i feel like i might be being generous compared to what you guys might say so we're gonna go to uh we're gonna go to zach next yeah so you know one of the interesting things about this movie is that it is a a remake i have not seen the original I did just watch the Siskel and Ebert review of the original, which was an, uh, which was a fun watch. They both gave it thumbs down, and they basically had the exact same criticisms that we have, assuming Todd agrees with us. I agree mostly with your review, Terry. Uh, it makes me think, like, what shitty review, what shitty movies from this era are they going to remake? Are we going to have a remake of Desperados in twenty years or Downsizing, like, or 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 Alone Yet Not Alone? Like, why was this movie ever remade to begin with? It's not a very good movie to begin with. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of sucked. It's sort of an awful, awful movie. Like, first of all, this girl's powers are not really like that defined. And, you know, anytime you get a kid with superpowers, because, you know, we haven't seen any of those in the last 10 years, uh, at least, uh, you know, they spend, a, these directors spend a little bit of time like developing, you know, like what they are. Well, this movie is not really <laughs> interested in that. It's more interested in cutaway scenes, the adult characters, and some really shitty low-lit uh, CGI that just looks bad every single time. She doesn't even really do anything with the fire. She just sort of makes a pouty face and then fire randomly appears. Like, come on, be yeah, at least do the Austin Powers thing when people fall into the fire pit in Dr. Evil's lair. Like, do something more interesting and engaging with it, okay? Um, I also disagree with you, Terry. I actually thought the first 30 minutes were pretty good. First of all, we get a, a nice gratuitous Zac Efron shirtless scene the first five minutes. I mean, sign me <laughs> up for that. I, I like that. Um, we get a scene. I mean, I just, let's just spoil this here. You know, one of her parents dies, and it's the parent whose name is not Zac Efron. And yet they really don't seem to care. They grieve more for a cat than the dead mother in this movie. Like, what the hell? You know, like uh, it, it, it doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, we've seen this movie before. It was called Logan. It was called Breitbart. It was called the first season of Stranger Things. It was called Chronicle. It was called Carrie. It was, oh, Breitbart. Excuse me. Not Breitbart. You can sell it tell what's on my <laughs> mind after the, the, the abortion movie still. Uh, so, um, yeah, we've seen it a million times. And then, you know, this whole story is basically a ripoff of Carrie, except in Carrie, 
the you know they actually in in both both film versions and the remake of that was also pretty shitty too at least in carrie they kind of show like why she sort of generates her powers and like what the reason is for her you know anger toward the people around her like there's no reason why this girl has this pyrokinetic power or whatever they say like there's 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 no rationale behind it we never see her develop it or try to generate any sort of control over it instead we get these stupid cutaway scenes to adults who really don't matter in the context of the story uh we got some truly horrific acting here i think uh uh let's see glory rubin is captain hollister great character name by the way uh laughably bad dialogue we get one scene with uh, Mr. Foreman from that 70s show, who's apparently now in the elderly home. The worst person in the movie is John Beasley as Irv. Uh, just, I mean, and, and that was a scene that was taken right out of uh, Logan. Like, did they just watch Logan and say, we're just going to assume people didn't watch this five years ago? Um, awful, awful. And by the way, it kind of reminds me, did you guys know that uh, Ving Rhames' name was Irving until Stanley Tucci suggested that he change his name to Ving. I just found that out this week. Did you guys know that? That is fascinating. That. that is way more fascinating than the 95 minutes of this utter catastrophe of a movie. The little girl, this is a bad kid performance. I mean, she just kind of looks mopey and, you know, she kills some cats every once in a while, kills some people for no reason. And this was just a com complete and utter waste of time. I really wanted to like this movie. You know, when we got the bad, I was the one that suggested we see something else. But, you know, reluctantly, I do like when we get the Voyagers type <laughs> movie that at least one of us can defend. And Voyagers is a good movie, by the way. I was hoping for it in this movie when Zach took his shirt off. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm on board. Let's do it. But uh, I cannot recommend this movie at all. It's, it's awful. It's not, it's, it's, that being said, it's nowhere near the bubble. I, I would still rather watch this over the bubble any day, but it gets one and a half stars for me. So in the original, Captain Hollister was played by Martin Sheen, like 1984 Martin Sheen. Yeah, and, and George C. Scott played the the assassin in the movie. And, yeah. and apparently he was more of a child molester pedophile than just a uh, rogue assassin who... I Did you understand that character? Because I certainly didn't. And uh, it just it made no sense. But I, I also have to confess I fell asleep a few times. By the way, I saw this movie in a theater. I I, I went to a theater rather than get a, uh, you know, one month free of Peacock. Because screw Peacock. I... Is there anything on Peacock that's worth watching? The outfit. Oh, the outfit is on Peacock right now. I mean, I um, I I have my DVR record Frasier, you know, on Cozy TV. I don't need to watch. I don't need to get a, a streaming service for old episodes of Frasier. Well, there, Peacock a has good shit. There's a free version of Peacock. Was this on the free part or was it? No, on it was on the. Part? I looked it up. I did not want to oh. have to go to the theater and see it. Well, there you go. All right, Todd, what did you think? I mean, we're obviously in agreement. I I mean, what what's weird about this movie is it's not even, like, fun bad. It's just kind of bad. Like, mm -hmm. it's like a slow burn methodical bad. Like, with nothing really to say. Like <laughs> Slow with, burn? Like, I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. That was not an intentional. Uh, but, like, I don't know. With Usually with bad horror movies, like, there's some sort of joy in watching the indulgence of it. But this is just like, they're like, okay, we're going to we're gonna take Midnight Special... <laughs> And we're going to make a really boring horror movie out of it. Because, like, there's a lot of Midnight Special and, like, um, in, in the way the superpowers are 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 displayed and, like, the the running from the law kind of thing. Like, they're, they're, it's, I mean, it's basically Midnight Special. But it's just a really bad horror movie. And, like, and all the performances are bad, 
with the possible exception of the assassin, Michael Grayias, who was nominated for a Spirit Award last year. He was in a really good movie called Wild Indian. I think he's pretty good in this, but yeah, you don't really understand that character or any character, really. The 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 uh, motivations of the characters are completely just lost on me. But I mean, I don't know. I, I've never read the book. I've never seen the original. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a really good book or something, but I, I think Carrie's kind of awful too. I'm not really a big Stephen King fan, but the special effects in here are bad too. Uh, with the exception of maybe a couple of scenes, Zac Efron is awful. Like, it's probably his worst performance. And I I was really surprised by that because I was like, oh, man, this is going to be interesting. I got Zac Efron in this, in the, in this sort of, like, you know, creepy horror movie not, and playing, like, a father. Not, not exactly at all what you expect from Zac Efron. Yeah, he's just kind of bad. The best part of the movie, for sure, was the John Carpenter score. Like, I, I didn't yes. know that he was actually composing stuff when he was not directing. But, like, this is, like, a 1980s music kind of thing kind of feels like one of his old movies it, it, they, and the scenes where his score is actually blaring are the ones that actually leave somewhat of an impact and i can see why this movie didn't go for just like a full-on uh release in the theater it was going to get drowned by dr strange anyway but like i feel like this is probably the last theater and streaming day and day thing that we get because like this movie couldn't even do it despite coming out on friday the 13th being a property that people know and one that has been released already and like you could just say nostalgia i guess and it's just, it sucks. And I, I was never going to be good because I, I don't know. I don't, I'm this director. I don't know either. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't believe how bad the movie ended up being. But yeah, I mean, I'm at one and a half stars as well. It's, I, I can see, I can see how this could get greenlit, but I can't see how it, it turned out to be just this kind of boring movie. It should not be boring. Yeah, I think it got, I mean, going back to kind of what Zach was saying too, I think it got greenlit because two reasons Stephen King and superpowers I mean there's even a line in there where they say you are a real life superhero I mean that that's it, it's it's trying to pull off of the success of superhero movies and they say hey we we own a Stephen King property that uh is kind of like a kid superhero let's bring it back and see what we can get out of it well yeah and the Stephen King movies recently have been doing really well like you had your Gerald's game and and stuff like that I mean Netflix has kind of brought it back Mm-hmm. but this this is like dead on arrival yeah and you know you gotta wonder like john carpenter you know welcome back i guess but like i mean john carpenter much of must have watched this and thought like come on you know keith keith uh thomas like i mean really this is it and I, I do have to say i mean i like the score but it's basically the same it's so much like halloween like you could just hear it in in the main like refrain and stuff i think they were probably i mean this movie was not screened for critics i i don't think part partly why we we didn't see the bad reviews until late in the week and uh yeah i guess it was probably the smartest thing to put it after dr strange because no other movie came out this week right it was perfect kind of for that but mm-hmm. i'm shocked that this movie wasn't just a direct to streaming only i don't i don't know why this movie ever thought that people would go to the theater and see it that being said more people were in the theater at that than there were at happening so there you go well and it's interesting because like todd said zach efron's career is kind of trending in the right direction and and you know whenever we we're, we're going to do a deep dive here we always whenever we do our recastings he always seems to be a popular one to bring up because oh he'd be great for glenn gary glenn ross oh yeah, yeah but his career is trending in the right direction and then he, I mean, this is the first movie he's made in a few years. I don't years. know. Is it, is it really trending in the right direction? He had that Netflix show a couple years ago where he, he travels. That's about all yeah. I think he's done. Well, he just has, he just kind of stopped doing stuff for a while. Well, he so. was in rehab for a while, too. I think that was part of it. Yeah. Like, 
this was not the comeback role that I think we were hoping for. And his name's at the top of the credits. It comes before the little girl. And you can definitely tell, like, the filmmaker was trying to suture him into the story. But it just, it felt so unnecessary. Like, like show us this girl learning about her fire skills. Don't show the, uh, Zac Efron and the mother talking about it. Don't show scientists talking about it. Don't have these constant cutaways. Like, let's at least get some, like, character development for this child like Carrie, but I guess she's too young. She's she's younger than Carrie, so it's not worth spending any time actually developing her as a character, which is silly and stupid and uh, like this whole movie. But honestly, I mean, if we weren't reviewing this on this podcast, how long would we remember this movie for? I think I'd forget it in about two weeks. Look, that's got to be the over-under. That sounds about right. Yep. All right. You well, remember anything about Brightburn? Because I, I don't. And and this seemed like it was uh, just like Brightburn. Wasn't there like wasn't like the climactic scene in a barn in Brightburn? Was it? It sounds was bright. Weird. That was the one that had the badger in it, right? The, yes. From Breaking Bad. Yes, I believe you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's about all I remember. And, and we've reviewed it for some reason. Elizabeth Banks. Elizabeth Banks. She must have been the mother. Guy. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. I, wow. I, I thought about Brightburn as well when I was watching. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's another one kind of like this. So anyways, okay, you, you, there was the suggestion made about the Rebel <laughs> Wilson cheerleader movie, which even got even worse reviews in this movie. So I guess we can be lucky that we didn't see that. There you go. There you go. There was a uh, Brightburn the other one... 2 has been greenlit, by the way. What did? Of course it has. Brightburn 2. <laughs> It's going to be well, released this year. Keith Thomas, hopefully, to, hopefully he directs it. We're going to have to watch that one. My my other suggestion for this week was uh, Operation Mincemeat, which went to Netflix, which is Colin Firth, I believe. John Madden. Is, is it a John Madden movie? I didn't even notice that part of it. Wow. I, I may have to just watch that. Imagine that having that conversation, you know, like 15 years ago that, you know, uh, John Madden directed Colin Firth movie wouldn't even make an impact on anyone. Yeah. Might be the best reviewed movie of the of the weekend, though, considering what the alternatives were. Is that right. how I think the real the, the real sort of hidden message here is just how scared everybody is of, of Marvel going head to head against Marvel. And that's just I, that's that's the environment that we live in. We should look right. We should look and see what comes out after uh, after uh, Thor. What what company dares to uh, you know put their put their inferior product the week after Thor comes out? Well, and and Todd and I were looking at this right before we got on too. Next week uh, is Downton Abbey, which will have its very specific audience. And the, then two weeks from now is Top Gun, um, and the week after that, nothing. And then the week after that, Jurassic Park. So it's kind of like this. There's this like every other week we'll release something big. But I think the week after Jurassic well, Jurassic World, not Jurassic Park. Week after Jurassic World, I think is Lightyear. So um, I think we're we're firmly into the summer months at that point. But I think we've spent way too much time on Firestarter at this point. So let's move on. I gave it two stars generously. Uh, Todd and Zach gave it probably what it deserves, which is one and a half stars. Um, if you have Peacock, it's on Peacock. It's also in theaters. There you go. That's Firestarter. Um, also, the uh, 1984 Drew Barrymore version is on uh, Peacock as well, so you can check that out if you want. Did you guys know that Drew Barrymore has a talk show? I just found that out this week. I, I, I've i heard about this, yes. Is Ving Rhames on it? 
No, uh, nor nor Stanley Tucci. But uh, uh, no, I think I think uh, my computer was listening to me, or they saw my phone saw that I got uh, tickets to uh, Firestarter and was like, "Hey, you should check out the Drew Barrymore show." I'm like, okay, thanks, thanks Apple. There you go, there you go. All right, well let's uh, let's move on to the the true topic at hand here, and that is celebrating the 30th anniversary of. Uh, one of the the more iconic like one like one room or almost one room movies like of all time it is david mamet's glenn gary glenn ross uh one of the best casts of all time uh some iconic moments iconic speeches iconic lines this is what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the time here todd you suggested this and we realized something that you always end up being like the master of a movie or close to it. So as the master of this movie, you are hosting trivia. So which was um, not an easy thing to do because there's a whole <laughs> lot to pull like other than dialogue. So it's true. It's true. So uh how are we doing this? Who's going first? Uh well Terry, you had it in your top hundred, I believe. So I guess I'll start with Zach. Okay. All right. So I'm going away. Good luck. Okay, I think I have, what, 10 questions for 13 points? And, uh, yeah, we'll see how this goes. The real question uh, is, would you have gotten these questions if they had been asked to you? Some of them, yes. Some of them, probably not a chance. Or okay. maybe two of them, not a chance. But uh, we'll see. Uh, number one, what was Shelley's doctor's name? Oh. No, no clue. Ridiculous Doctor, question. Dr. Lowenstein. Would you have gotten that? Depends on if what I was looking for. Shelly's doctor or his daughter's doctor? My daughter's doctor, whatever, whoever he's talking to on the phone. He's actually talking to the doctor? Well, his office. Ridiculous question. <laughs> I, I, what, okay, number two. I reject worth, it. Worth three points. What are the three mottos that are posted above Williamson's office? Okay, uh, a salesman is not made, a salesman is born, is one of them. Yeah, yeah, basically, wrong order of of things, but yeah, you got it. Okay, and I have no idea about the other two. Uh, Another one is, uh, a man only hits what he aims for, and a man's dreams should exceed his grasp. Both of which are very prominent in a couple of scenes, but uh, they are just sort of background things. Uh, Number three, what month is it? do feel like that came up uh is it april it's, it's not in dialogue it's uh it was on the uh the chalkboard okay april no it's uh, september okay it's raining way too much to be april uh it's a midwest though man it's chicago sure how how much can blake make in two hours according to him i i'm, I'm doing miserable terry's gonna kick my ass uh ninety thousand dollars Fifteen thousand dollars, he says. Okay. Uh, what smells vaguely of shit? Uh, train compartments. Yes, all train compartments. Correct. One of my favorite lines, actually, the real candidate for my <laughs> quote of the day. How, how much per lead the would Graph pay according to Moss versus how much in reality did he probably pay him? 
Okay. I, I don't know if I fully understand that question, but I think didn't they how say much, how much does he hit does he claim he was going to get per lead and how much does is it implied that he actually got per lead? I thought it was ten dollars per lead. That's how much he says he's gonna get paid, and how much does he does it is it implied that he's going to get per lead? Well, I thought he get they get he gets five thousand dollars. So isn't it ten dollars? I it must not be since it's, since you're saying it's a different number, so I'll say five dollars. It sounded like he makes it seem like he was going to get seventy five hundred dollars total, so it should be fifteen dollars per lead. That too much math involved. Again, that's a Terry question. I'm not a I math know, teacher. I don't math know math. math. Sure. Yeah. What Lame. What was the keyword for Ricky and Shelly, and what was Shelly supposedly vice president of when they're talking to Link? Oh, jeez. <laughs> no clue. Um. He. I, yeah. No clue. Uh, the keyword was Kenilworth. That's what he does every time he slipes his hair. And uh, he was he was a vice president of American Express. Oh, that's right. Yeah, American Express. Yeah, there's so much dialogue in this movie. To ask questions about the dialogue is, I think, very. I know that's why difficult. it was going to be difficult. Okay. <laughs> uh, what is Shelley's uh, fake secretary's name? No idea. I, white flag. I surrender. Grace. There's Grace. one more question. Okay. What was Shelly eating when he closed the Mountain View account? No clue. Crumb, crumb cakes. You got three points. We'll see how, those were, see those how were, those were, you're really saying that you would have gotten most of those questions. Actually, I can kind of believe it, but still. That, I've, I, I've, I've listened to this movie a lot. Um, that, so, is the, that was the hardest trivia I've ever experienced. <laughs> on podcast. That was absolutely brutal. I, I couldn't hear anything, but I could see Zach shaking his head a lot, and have and, fun with and that. And I could, Jerry. I could, I could notice he was saying a lot of "I have no clue." So, all right, we have. I think it's ten questions worth thirteen points. Zach got three points. Okay, okay. Number one, what is what was uh, Shelley's doctor's name? Uh, Lowenstein. Oh, wow. Correct. Nice. That was also like, Barbara Streisand's name in The Prince of Tides, I believe. It's also uh, David Strathairn in, in League of Their Own. That, <laughs> oh, there we that, that Ira Lowenstein. That's it. <laughs> I knew I heard uh, that name somewhere. Number two, we're three points. What are the three mottos that are posted above Williamson's office? The three mottos? Always be closing. Is that one of them? That is not. No. That's on like the the poster thing with next to the catalog. Right, 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 right. Um, um, okay, if you don't know, then you're not going to yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah. It's uh okay. So their salesmen are born, not made. A man only hits what he aims for, and a man's dream should exceed his grasp. Wow, the the born not made one. I remember seeing that one. Yeah, that's only one I saw. <coughs> uh, number three. What month is it? Oh, according to the chalkboard, you should have asked what day it is. I remember that February, September. Oh, yeah, you both were equally very far off on that. Uh, it's actually kind of impressive. Uh, okay, number four, how much can Blake make in two hours? How much can Blake make in two? Um, oh, 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 okay. Um, $15,000? That's correct. 
Uh, so you, it's uh, three to two, Zach. Uh, what smells vaguely of shit? Oh, oh, um, is it the office? No, no. It's, uh, all train compartments. Train. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's the question that Zach said Terry will get. Um, how much per lead would Graph pay according to Moss? And how much does he, in reality, supposedly get paid per lead? Um, ten to fifteen dollars, and he's actually going to pay twenty. I mean, sort of. Isn't that <laughs> he what it he, is? He said he's going to get. He said he's going to get about ten dollars like per lead, point. and fifteen points or fifteen dollars is what he supposedly is going to get paid. He says he's five hundred leads. Ten dollars a lead, five thousand dollars. But he's like, and then he says he's actually getting seventy five hundred. But but if he's getting so seventy five. So and 15. wait, fifteen dollars no, no. a he's lead. He's getting seventy five, but is giving twenty five hundred to to whoever gets them for him. So he's selling them. Yeah. How much would graph pay? Is what I said. <clears throat> yeah. You're he getting says, a half. You are getting a half a point. He said he says ten, maybe. 15. I should get a half point. I said no, 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 I no, 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 no. I'm right. You, I gave you a full point for ten. That was one point, oh. and then the second point was how much in. Was I do he agree. Actually good? I do agree with Terry that I think the question is a little oddly worded, and it's it's a little bit. I don't know if it's one hundred percent clear that that he gets that money. He says he's gonna get. He said he's gonna get seventy five hundred because if, if he doesn't allude to how much money he's giving. His what his cut? No, is, his right. cut's five thousand. Cut is seventy five hundred. No, he said he's going to get seventy five hundred, and uh, George gets twenty five hundred, and Moss gets his own concern. But he says seventy five hundred. He doesn't say that that, that, his, that George's cut is still twenty five hundred. That's he implied. It, no. it isn't. Uh, that's that's how I heard it. But I don't no, remember him he, saying when he says it, he says though. he says ten, maybe fifteen. That's what he says when he's asked how much he'd pay for. But then he says he's getting five hundred or five thousand, probably. But he said he's getting five. But then he said he says seventy five hundred later. I'm getting. He he says seventy five, and he goes seventy five. I thought that was this. He goes, well, yeah, seventy five is my cut. I know that's how I heard it. So I I thought it was. We're we're the only podcast out there that is bringing attention, bringing light to this important question. Terry's getting. I mean, he's getting. Oh yeah, he's getting a half a point. So it's two, three to two and a half. Uh, the next I thought I got like, a point and a half. Well, I mean, he said ten. I guess ten to fifteen is sort of right. So maybe so you're getting no, one point. No. You're getting one point. It's tied. <laughs> I know the exact line you're talking about. It's just how you interpret the line, and and that's a okay. That determines well, yeah. I mean, so you were you, 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 he does say ten to fifteen, but then he does say five thousand and he says seventy five hundred. Which <laughs> and then he does say 15, does say that seventy five hundred is his cut. No, he and, says, and George is still getting twenty five hundred. Whatever. Uh, we're moving on. I'll give you a point. You're going to w- get one of these next four points. Uh, the next ones were two points. What was the key word for Ricky and Shelly? And what was Shelly supposedly vice president of when they were talking about uh, Oh, 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 um, crap. Uh, the key word was, um, it, it was the stroke of the hair and it was, it started with a K, um, it was the town. That the that the CEO's daughter was getting married in, um, and that's what he was gonna. That, that was his excuse, um, and he was an exec for. Gosh, dang it! Um, it was like was he an exec for like AT and T? 
American Express. Ow! I knew. God dang it. And Kenilworth. It was, um, Kenilworth. So it's I, still three to three. I mean, I, I explained the, the rest of the scene. I, I just know. didn't have the line. What is Shelly's fake secretary's name? Grace. Grace. Hey, Gra- <laughs> Grace. <laughs> That's why I thought you were going to get that. That's correct. So you win. There's one more question. <laughs> what was Shelly eating when he closed Mountain View? What was Shelly eating when he closed Mountain View? Oh, um, he was eating. Oh, 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 oh. I, I have no right. You were saying. Uh, and, um, um, uh, it was, it was store-bought. Um, it's impressive. And it was, uh, it was uh, coffee cake, crumb cakes, crumb pretty cake. close. Oh, oh, yeah. So with with a grand total of four to three, Terry is the champion because he remembered Grace uh, Shelley's secretary, but Zach had stepped out during that moment. Grace. <laughs> he says it like he says that more times Grace. than some other characters that are actually in the movie and are real actually have their names said. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that, that was, was that was probably a pretty hard painful. trivia, but painful. it was also hard to come up with questions because I had to watch it twice in order to do so because <laughs> all you have is dialogue pretty much, except for those three mottos which you guys didn't pay attention to. I, I thought I thought you were going to come up or I thought uh one of the questions was going to be um uh what is the name of the restaurant that they uh that they go to across the street? And the, the signs they, they call it one thing, but the science is China Bowl restaurant. And then I thought you were going to say something about what um, what is underneath their office, and it's a Dunkin' Donuts. I thought you were That's going true. to ask what uh, what the first line in the movie is, which is the room number of Shelley Levine's daughter, which is 2306. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say... I something um, from that very sentence, and you couldn't remember it, though. <laughs> I thought you were going to, to ask... Um, get, have a two-point question of... What was the name of the person George called that he called by the wrong name? And uh, what was the name he called them? I don't remember that. It, it's, it's the first person he calls. And after Baldwin's oh. done. Oh, he goes, yeah. Is, it, is this Mrs. So-and-so? I forget the first one. But then he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Miss, Mr. Chintz? Mr. Yeah, Chintz. Yeah. Uh, this this yeah, is George Arnold. Right. <laughs> there's, there's also a scene where there's a map of Florida behind... Uh, Kevin Spacey. I thought there's I thought also a were... map of Idaho at one point, <laughs> but no map of Wisconsin. Yeah, <laughs> Muncie, Wisconsin. Uh, but he's going there. He's going there. Kenilworth. 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 I knew it started with a K. I knew every other detail about that whole thing, except, except for the except word that's repeated like a hundred times. The in that word, <laughs> Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh, we'll talk- go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. You, Todd, you picked this one. Uh, tell us about it and uh, and why you love it so much. Going Gary Glenn Ross is the greatest <laughs> screenplay in the history of movies. Written by David Mamet based on his play. Directed by James Foley for some reason. I don't know why David Mamet didn't direct this. He probably should have. But it also has my number one ensemble cast of all time, which now is exclusively Oscar-nominated actors. Jonathan Price got his nomination for The Two Popes. It is something that I, I think we've said it before. Terry and I used to put this on as background noise when we were doing stuff around the house when we were kids. Like, not kids, probably teenagers. But uh, it's something that we just, I don't know. I, I've always been obsessed with movies about, like, 
Wall Street. These are these guys are actually uh, real estate salesmen, but there is a lot of Wall Street-ish stuff in there. And Boiler Room idolizes this movie as much as they do Gordon Gecko. It's uh, it's something that I just I love the rhythm of Mamet plays. I love the rhythm of his dialogue in all of his movies. Like it's Sorkin esque in that way, where nothing really sounds like this movie. Uh, and these are legendary actors at the absolute top of their game. I've seen this movie probably 20 times and it, I could watch it again right now. I watched it twice in the last three days and I, I honestly could turn it on again. I would have no problems with it. Yeah. Um, I'm looking here. You've got it. Number six on your top hundred. Yes. I yes, have it it number 36. Number six is, was kind of, uh, hilariously high when we actually revealed our top. Uh, top 100 list but it's, when i was watching it again i was just like yeah this i mean this is the most hypnotic thing like i i could i think it actually is properly placed and i never would have admitted that probably like 10 years ago but this actually is a top 10 movie of all time it goes by so fast and and it's because of the dialogue it's because of how just how like snappy the dialogue is how how quick it is i i like how you compared it a little bit to a sorkin script because it, it it kind of feels like that except it has a little bit of a different rhythm to it um sorkin is always is always boom 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 go go from one to the other one to the other this one it's a lot of like there's there's talking on top of each other but then there's the moments where it really knows how to take its time um it, it's uh and and like well, you said, there's a lot between just one or two characters like that's or that's that's part of the thing and i had read where they the the other actors that weren't in those scenes and their, their days off, they would actually go and watch the others perform just because it was like something that you could just idolize, just like wow, these like this is these are the best actors in the world doing their thing, and that's the way I am watching this movie, and it's kind of a miracle that it came together like this. Yeah. Um, by the way, you mentioned you could watch it again. I just turned it on, so I'm gonna have it on while we. Oh, How are you gonna do it without dialogue? I, think I, I know. Need, I'm just going to need to go back it. to the scene where the 7500 is is mentioned, Terry. I, I think we need. Oh, to, I know exactly. We need to deconstruct that scene deeper. I I, I watched it and I I listen and I paid really close attention. From what he says, it is you can assume he's getting ten thousand dollars and Moss's cut is seventy five and whoever and George will ends up being Shelley, their cut is twenty five. That that's how I that's how I heard that scene. That's never the way I interpreted it, but it did it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. I find it really interesting that in this movie the um Glenn Ross is mentioned once. Just once in like nostalgia. And that's it. I just always, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, maybe in the play it was it'd be expanded upon more, but I don't know how long the play actually is. And I know Blake isn't actually a character in the play, so it's sort of. Oh, interesting. I don't know where Glenn Ross. Maybe there is another one of those like old war stories they have about Glenn Ross farms, but uh, yeah, it's not really said. So Zach, you're the one that doesn't have it in their top 100. No, um, nowhere I'm looking close. Here, you don't even have it. You have it at four stars, but it's not in your top 10 of the year. Um, but tell us what, uh, you did give it four stars though. So tell us about what you think of Glengarry. So I think when I met you guys back in Concordia RIP days, uh, you know, you told me about this great movie, Glengarry Glen Ross. Now I had heard of Glengarry Glen Ross. I'd probably seen clips of it, but, um, 
I don't think I had seen the whole thing when I had met you. And something that really prompted me to watch it, and I feel like the first time I sat through the whole thing was with you guys. I don't know, or at least with you, Terry, and East Hall. Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe you have more. You came over to our to my apartment to watch it, I think. Okay. You and Josh Allen. Well, the real catalyst for it was an amazing <laughs> YouTube clip. It should go in the YouTube Archive Hall of Fame because it was one of the first YouTube clips that was a swear count of the characters in <laughs> this movie. And so I remember... Before watching this video, um, we guessed who would be number one. And Terry, you said Ed Harris. Ed Harris is number one. I think I predicted that it was going to be uh, Al Pacino, who's close. But he's. it's a great video. Watch it. It's an amazing swear counter. Um, maybe I picked Kevin Spacey. I, I know I didn't pick Ed Harris. I was I was off on that one. But after seeing it, I mean, it's obvious that it's going to be Ed Harris. Well, Ed Harris doesn't have as many scenes though. I, I still thing. think Shelley actually. No, is, but it, I, he says it like once or twice per sentence. By the way, this also would have been a, a bet, better than any of Todd's stupid trivia questions. The 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 swear <coughs> count. Uh, I'd have to look at the video again. I believe that uh, Ed Harris is at sixty eight. Pacino is at like high fifties and. Uh, Lemon is in the low 50s, but it is. It's about uh, quantity versus or quality versus over quantity. I think anytime Harris is on screen, the the swears per minute barometer just dramatically increase compared to the other characters. But uh, okay, so yeah, I, I I like this movie a lot when I first saw it. I do have to confess, I have not seen it in a very very long time. I want I in fact I don't think I've seen it even since I was college. Uh, so watching it again, I watched it twice this week. So the first time I watched it, uh, I could not get out of my head uh, how David Mamet has turned into a Trump supporter. He says all, all public teachers are, are child molesters. He's 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 lost. He's in the James Woods category of someone who is, is awful. And of course, Kevin Spacey's been canceled. I couldn't get that out of my mind. So as I was watching, I was like, you know, screw this movie. Uh, this movie is right wing propaganda, blah, blah, blah. Let's celebrate capitalism. And I thought. I, 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 maybe I'm just stuck in the moment there, so I should go back and watch it again. I, and I must confess, after rewatching it, you know, this morning, I'm a little bit more sympathetic toward the movie. I don't think it is uh, in my top 100 nearly at all time. It's not a four star movie, but it is a really interesting movie. And I think part of it, I think it's taken on a life of its own a little bit. I think people memorize, people remember it for the Alec Baldwin speech. It's a whole lot more than the Alec Baldwin speech. Uh, it, people remember it for the great performances, for the cast, for the Oscar caliber talent in the movie. One of Jack, maybe Jack Lemmon's last great performance. It's all of those things, but I think it's a lot more. I think it, it's definitely resonant in the last uh, five years of, of our country. And you you cannot watch this movie. And again, I'll try to I'll try to not not proselytize too much, but you can't watch this movie without thinking about Donald Trump. You can't watch this movie without thinking about Alec Baldwin on SNL impersonating. Donald Trump about someone who got elected president because there were a, a you know a group of people in this country who liked watching him fire people on TV, and this movie has an ethos that is totally Trumpian, and uh, in that sense, it's a it's it's a fascinating viewpoint. Now, is it a critique of it? No, I mean that's maybe that's that's the problem that I have with the movie because I don't think it it goes hard enough on it. It just kind of shows how everybody. <sighs> situation in this milieu is just uh, awful. Uh, I think a you know a more sympathetic film filmmaker or storyteller would have made Shelley Levine 
a character that you know you root for more uh, and ma make it more easily identifiable. But in this movie, he's also kind of a scumbag too. Um, you know, he he has uh, extreme pride and he just you know shows off for the last forty five minutes of the movie, shoves it in Williamson's face, and that makes him a pretty repellent character as well. And 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 so as I was watching the first time, I was like, screw that, you know, what we're gonna side with Williamson. We're gonna say he's the he's the most morally uh, you know uh, uh, the upright character in the movie but i think the movie i don't know it has a lot of interesting things to say about the ethos of of, sa of sales about selling shit to people uh, and about people who buy the shit that they don't even know what they're buying i mean the scenes with al pacino and jonathan price are absolutely fascinating in some ways they're the most mamet scenes because it's all about um a swindle basically and mamet of course at this time was doing things like house of games and the spanish prison are very interested in how magic and trickery is conceived and in that scene Ricky Roma is basically just, uh, you know, uh, pulling a magic trick on this helpless uh, consumer played by Jonathan Price. And, and that scene is fascinating. It's really interesting to watch. I don't love this movie. I think it's too talky. It's really directed. And uh, it feels like a play. It feels like a staged uh, version of the play. But it does have good performances. And it's certainly iconic. And, uh, you know, obviously the Alec Baldwin SNL sketch where he's the, the elf at Christmas time is a great Great, uh, uh, you know, satire of this movie. It's always an, be cobbling. Always be cobbling. It's an interesting movie. I wonder what the Darden brothers would think of it. I, I, I think they, they would, <laughs> you know, go after capitalism a lot more than this movie does. But that's just my reading of the movie, and it, it's it's an interesting movie. I don't really know why Todd chose it, except for the fact that it's the most uber Todd movie maybe ever. But uh, it's it's it, it's an interesting movie. I'm also shocked that Pacino got a nomination instead of Lemon. But maybe we can talk about that. But uh, I mean, this is this is Jack Lemon's last great role. So show some. Lemon's kind of lead though. That's that's the thing. Yeah, I I uh, I think the point of the movie is that every person in the movie is a horrible person. Yes, I, I, I agree. I think I think that's definitely the point. And every all the salesmen, well, yeah. everyone in the office, like. Jonathan Price's character is not a horrible person. But they're either they're either uh, horrible or they're weak and hapless, like Jonathan Price and to a certain extent Alan Arkin. I mean, they're totally ineffectual and unable to express themselves or have any sort of agency over anything, and they're basically milk toast. And they never actually mentioned Alec Baldwin's name. Yeah, like wouldn't it be I awesome if the credits of it just said like "fuck you" as his name because that's what he said <laughs> his name is. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I, I saw it in the credits of like. Blake, they never say that. Why is it Blake? Um, yeah, I, I find this fascinating because I, I mean, Todd, you mentioned like Boiler Room and then there's Wall Street, and there, there's all these movies about like stockbrokers and 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 those that were that do things like that. Of all those movies, I feel like Glenn Gary really is the one that you you truly re feel like these people make money off of convincing people to spend their money. And uh, because what they're what they're selling is it feels so like the like this is a real estate movie that under no circumstances do you care that it's a that it's real estate they're selling. All they care about is that they're selling. I mean, that's the whole point of Alec Baldwin's speech is it's it's always be closing. Who cares what you're selling? You have to sell it. And that that's that's all that matters is you have to make money. You have you are the smarter one in the room and uh, and. Yeah, they have all this money and they're waiting to give it to you. That's what he says. Like they're right. trying to give you their money. Like just go make the deal. Yeah. And, and people like Williamson get in the way of it. 
if and, they're not uh, smart. Yeah. And, and uh, <clears throat> Zach, I think you make some interesting points there, but I, I think part of what I love about this movie is, I mean, it, it doesn't preach, but it also says how people, when they're, when greed is at the, the forefront, people are horrible people. And that, that's what this is all about. I mean, these salesmen, they're, they are out to sell things so they can make money. They don't really even care what they're selling. All they care about is that they make money. They win their Cadillac and they don't get fired. And uh, the people that buy are buying to try and make money. So, I mean, it's all about, it's, it's all, it's all about how greed corrupts. And um, the one thing I found really interesting that I, it was a whole little line of dialogue that I never caught before. Um, when I think it's when Moss in, and, uh, and George, so Alan Arkin character are just kind of chatting and, and Moss goes into this whole thing about how Mitch and Murray have screwed this whole thing up because they're, they're screwing over the customer. It's like the, the point is not to sell someone a car. The point is to sell someone 12 cars over the next 50 years. Um, and, and Mitch and Murray have screwed that up and they, and they, are just screwing the customer and now you can't sell to the people you've sold before because they screwed them over the last time and it's, it's five uh, cars in 15 years by the way yeah <laughs> whatever it is but, uh, yeah, yeah 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 but i mean it's it, it the point is the point's valid and i think that's that's something that alec baldwin's character totally doesn't doesn't um doesn't uh subscribe to and you can tell and honestly i don't even know if moss subscribes to it He's just trying to find a way like he's trying to sell George on this whole scheme he's got. So he's going to say whatever the hell he needs to, to, to sell him on it. Yeah. Well, and what you're talking about is something that in boiler room, they actually do expand upon more because like it's, it's one of those things where it's like, we don't care about these customers. They buy this, we make our money. Then we'll go on to somebody else. Like these aren't people that actually are in the market to buy stock. They're just like fit a certain category. And they're like, he's just some poor schmuck who doesn't know what to do with his money. And I made him, I told him what to do with it. And that, that's basically what they're doing in Finger and Glenn Ross is just they haven't they never actually explicitly say it like that. Well, because they, the they don't care, they don't they don't need to sell these guys another <clears throat> another plot of land like they, they're already going to get their big score and then they move on. Well, I think the difference between a movie like Boiler Room and a movie like this is Boiler Room is telling a full fledged story. This is telling 24 hours in these characters lives. And it's okay. really it's it's more of a character study in this extremely like tight um yeah you never get a scene with shelly and his daughter or something like because yeah. if you did it would be a different movie like we are totally focused on the actual sale the the on premiere properties and what goes on there and that night which the timeline is a little screwy but i which i'm not really sure how that all works out but yeah 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 you're right boy the room is more of a of a full-on movie well, where this is more focused and and wolf of wall street too which also yeah. has the same sort of thing where it's like the client doesn't really matter what they're selling doesn't really matter it's what like mcconaughey says it's a fugazi right fugazi fugazi who, who cares like at the end of the day it's about putting cash on the table and if you can't do that then you know you're out pal or like, uh, you know, Dingham says, you know, there's no, no Alec Baldwin said in uh, The Departed, but uh, it's always a bartender or always a, what's the line? The world needs more bartenders. Excuse yeah, me. Um, exactly. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, I think the thing that's kind of interesting, like I, I, I agree with you, Terry, that it's sort of interesting that it's, it's, an, it's, 
a movie that is it isn't a full-fledged story in fact one of the things i really like about it is that it, it starts with a contest and if you've never seen the movie before you might think oh this movie's about who's going to win the car and who's going to win the steak knives and of course the contest has nothing to do with anything it's never resolved it never returns that's like that's that like adam saying that one movie was going to be about trying to like reverse the charge 25th hour with him yes, reversing exactly. the charges wait has adam seen this movie that's probably he what he thought <laughs> Let's see here. Adam, Adam has it at three and a half stars as number three of 1992. All right. Well, boy. well, the thing, the thing that like, I don't know if this is a criticism of it or not. I don't know what to think of it. I had a more interesting time thinking and processing this movie than actually watching it. Like, I actually don't hmm. think it's a particularly well-written movie. Like there's a lot of scenes where the characters are like, what are you talking about? Or like, explain that again. Or wait, what happened? It's not like there's great dialogue outside the Alec Baldwin scene. I mean, it's like it's it's serviceable dialogue that moves the story forward, I guess. But it's a more interesting movie to think and process about in the context of, you know, maybe the 80s when Mamet wrote it versus today. And it's interesting to kind of think about the characters and, and sort of speculate about their backstories or their motivations for working there. But in itself, in like, you know, the the the, the vacuum world of the of the movie, it's not terribly interesting so that that to me diminishes it it's interesting watching the actors yell at each other i mean that's that's fun it's more interesting to think about the the, the world uh, the world that exists outside this vacuum of a story which maybe isn't a, a, a bad thing in itself but it's just kind of something that watching it you know 10 15 years later i just i i didn't uh find myself as engrossed by i think also i mean going off of what kind of what we're saying a little bit here is this movie, I feel like this this movie and this play is definitely a product of its time, too. Like, it's definitely a product of the early 90s, late 80s, that, that time period when, you know, when just life in general looked a whole lot different and people were buying things just for the sake of buying them. And, and I mean, it, it's a reason why Wall Street existed at this time. And it, it's, uh, it, it's kind of all a product of that, uh, that moment. Um, okay. This movie did only have one Oscar nomination, and it was for Al Pacino for Supporting Actor. Uh, this was the year that he won Best Actor for Scent of a Woman. Um, can we all say he gave a better performance in this? Yeah, probably. I think that's safe to say. I've Zach, would you agree Scent of a Woman. Oh, wow. Okay. Hoo-ah! Yeah, I well, just you know avoided that. it my whole life. I mean, supporting actor was a loaded <laughs> category too, which is why three or four of these actors didn't get nominated, which they probably could have easily. Yeah, let's look it up here. So 92, supporting actor. Yeah, Gene Hackman, we had Jay oh, Davidson, yeah. Jack Nicholson, Nicholson. Men, and then David Pamer, Mr. Saturday Night. Don't forget about Mr. David Pamer. Yeah. And that's the one that, that has, has uh, had the longest life. <laughs> yeah that, that was a pretty loaded uh, pretty loaded category and i mean i felt i kind of felt like pacino got the nomination it was kind of like like why jamie fox got the nomination for collateral it's like yes. he was gonna win best actor and let's give him another nomination just for the fun of it just like in case we like he somehow doesn't win best actor <laughs> kind of no ju just just to kind of anoint it this is his year and let's let's just all be clear that we love him this year and let's make sure he gets he gets all the recognition as possible for it 
Well, that's what they did the next year with Holly Hunter, too. It was obvious that she right. was going to win. And then they gave her you know, a bullshit nomination for the piano, which she's in for about five minutes. You mean the firm? The firm, the firm excuse me. She's also in the piano. Well, she's in the piano for quite a bit more than five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I think. She, well, she speaks actor. more in, uh, in the firm. That's, that's true. true. <laughs> she does have more spoken line. Harvey Keitel is also more <laughs> naked in the piano than the firm. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. Let's go on to our Mount Rushmore and, uh, our Mount Rushmore is greatest play adaptations of all time. Um, are we going to consensus Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Zach, would you be willing to do that? Sure. Why not? Okay. Let's have some fun. Let's have some fun. All right. <laughs> so Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is on the list. Uh, and Zach, since you agreed to that so graciously, we're going to start with you. Uh, submit your submission to Mount Rushmore on uh, on this. Okay, well, uh, I, well, you got to go with um, the 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 play. Everybody comes to Rick's, which is later turned into the immortal Casablanca. I guess I give this one a little bit of an asterisk because does anybody ever perform? Everybody goes to Rick's. Is that even a real thing? Like that could. There's like a ten percent chance that that's just a made up story that it's based off a of play. But technically, it is a play adaptation, and if you watch Casablanca, it does kind of feel like a play, but it never feels stagey. I mean, you can you can at least see where it derives from as a play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Casablanca, right? It kind of has to be. I mean, Todd said that Glengarry Glenn Ross is the greatest screenplay of all time, which is ridiculous. Out, outrageous statement. Uh, Casablanca actually might be the best written movie of all time. And so, of course, you know, you got to applaud its, its stage derivation. So you're saying uh, Casablanca is actually like Moonlight or whatever, where it's like a, a play that never has ever been performed. It's just a movie now. I think so. I could see right. it. Terry, tell us about A Few Good Men. Well, I was going <laughs> to say A Few Good Men. So, uh, yeah, um, another 1992 movie. Um, and we've mentioned Sorkin often enough already on this podcast, even though it's not about him at all. So let's mention him some more because, yeah, he got his start writing a play called a few good men and it got turned into a movie and i i love the movie i mean it's when everyone fell in love with what sorkin can do um i think it might be it's probably his the best thing he's done and the best the best written thing it's the best acted thing um and uh and it all started with all started with a play um i think i saw somewhere that um was it uh jk simmons like was a part of the play production. Like it was originally part of the play production. Like he may have been in the cast and maybe like understudy for Jessup or something like that. I, th I think I saw that somewhere. Like in the eighties. Um, was he? Yeah. Even, I didn't yeah. know he was acting back then. Uh, stage acting. But, um, but yeah. So yeah, a few good men. That's my submission. Jameson so, would have made a great, you know, you can't handle the truth. I mean, you, you could see him saying that, right? Oh yeah. Absolutely. All right, Todd, where are you going? Well, I wrote down like 11 plays that were in or around my top 100. And but I have two that aren't like that are adapted from somebody else's play. Like all like all the ones in my top 100 are the screenwriter is adapting their own play. So I decided to go with the one of the ones that isn't. And that's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is another movie that there are very few sets in that play or in that movie it does feel like a play but it is similar to Glengarry Glen Ross where there are these like four titanic performances going on and it's it's 
is something that you don't get to see if you're not like actually watching the live stage version. Like it's it, it, who's afraid of, who's afraid of a general wolf has four of the best performances of the sixties. And, uh, and this Mike Nichols first movie, which is crazy. And, uh, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I wrote down two movies and it, were, it was a few good men and who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, And, um, and who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? It, like you said, it's like Glenn Gary in that you can tell, you can tell it's based on a play because it, it, it's very like bound to its set. But at the same time, the fact that it can be as engaging as it is in the space that it has just is such a testament to the writing and to the acting, just like in Glengarry. It's obviously, yeah. it's obviously a great pick. So I, uh, I want to take out for, for a second my wonderful 2002 DVD of, from Artisan, R.I.P. Artisan of Glengarry Glen Ross. And uh, I went through this DVD. It's one of those classic, you know, two disc DVDs where the second disc is uh, pan and scan wonderful um some really awesome features on it my favorite extra feature though is a a commentary by glengarry glenn ross's uh production designer named jane muskie and i thought i thought she actually had the the most interesting things to say and the reason i bring it up is because she talks about how she actually gives a history of production designers in hollywood and she talks about the movie that changed production design <coughs> in Hollywood history was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She says that that was the movie that you can pinpoint and say movies went from artificial stagey sets to something that felt a lot more lived in and realistic. And I 100% agree with that. Like that's a that's a great insight. And that seems really, really accurate. You look at movies post Virginia Woolf, even movies based on plays or movies that are talky. And it just doesn't, a lot of them don't, you know, the successful ones don't feel like plays because of the production design. She kind of talks about how in this movie, that was the most vital element to make sure that people realize that they weren't in a stage theater, but in a movie theater. And I actually, for what it's worth, I do think this movie has pretty good production design. That That is interesting. I, I and I can totally see it. I can totally see that because it, it, you're right. It Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf feels very real. Which is something that wasn't necessarily what you saw in film in the in the sixties and before. <laughs> yeah, it was like they were clearly in a backyard of some kind or something. Like at least right. it seemed like that when it wasn't. Yeah, you know, they weren't from some screen or like that cafe that they have the dance in. Mm -hmm. So, what other movies were we thinking about for this? This should I have mean, been a power rankings, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I only wrote down I only wrote down the few because I had a feeling I was going to be able to say one of them. So, what else did you have, Todd? You said you had a list. Well, the other one that's not that someone was adapting somebody else's play was Wait Until Dark, which is oh, oh. A, a, another amazing movie. But um, but the ones that I could uh, I had on Golden Pond, uh, Closer, Tape, A Bronx Tale, A Few Good Men, A Streetcar Named Desire, Dial M for Murder, Sleuth, Amadeus, Fences, The Father, and The Lion in Winter. All of which are in or around my top 100, 150 of all time. Which, I mean, a variety of kinds of movies there, but that just shows how how great play plays are for adaptations. And we actually did decide we weren't going to use any Shakespeare adaptations for this. Right. I don't know if you guys right. remember doing No that. Shakespeare and no, no musicals either, even though they're stage-bound, right. but yeah. 
we're going for strictly place. Zach, did you have any others you were considering? Uh, just three, really. Amadeus, <laughs> Doubt, and um, On Golden Pond. And Doubt's another really good one. I also really like Killer Joe. I mean, it's not like my favorite movie or anything, but I think Killer Joe is a really underrated movie from the last 10 years. Matthew McConaughey, William Friedkin, Jack. Juno Temple. Yep. Awesome movie. You like that one, right, Todd? Yeah, I did not know that was a play, though. Yeah, that was my problem, is remembering what was a play and what wasn't. All right, let's get into our recasting, which I had a lot of fun with. This was a fun one um, because, I mean, we always talk about what kind of people are we looking for in our recasting, and we always we always joke about the, the if we had the unlimited budget recasting. Well, look at this cast. We have an unlimited budget recasting if you want, if you want it here because this cast is all legends. So let's get into it. Uh, Todd, you're going to go first. We're going to start with the the Oscar-nominated role of Ricky Roma, played by Al Pacino. Uh, who did you recast as uh, as as Roma? So Ricky's got probably I would say all the best lines in the movie, but he and he holds it. He has a, a stature about himself <laughs> that um, is 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 sort of hard to pinpoint. I have two names written down. One of which we already mentioned today, and I know you're not going to say it. That's Jamie Fox. Because I think Jamie Foxx has has that kind of like uh, ego about him, but also could back it up. And I, I think I'd see hear him saying a lot of those lines. But the one I'm actually going to say is Josh Brolin, because the way he carries himself is so similar to the way Pacino was in the early '90s. That uh, I think it would just be it would it'd be perfect. It just seemed like you were saying that. I mean, Josh Brolin has he has that early Pacino thing. Not bad. I thought about Brolin, but I didn't feel like it fit quite right. Zach, who'd you have? I went with the one and only friend of the podcast, <laughs> best actor 2019, Adam Sandler. Because if you're going to have someone shout obscenities nice. and, you know, talk about, uh, you know, time is money and he wants that Cadillac and he's going to throw shit in Williamson's face and he's going to have a freak out meltdown. Is there any better go-to actor today than Adam Sandler? By the way, what do you guys think about the new Adam Sandler movie? I texted Todd when the trailer dropped earlier this week, but I gotta say, I, I know, I know the the, uh, the the crew is a little dubious, but Hustle I think looks pretty exciting. I don't think I saw the trailer yet. I need to see that one. Really? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be good, but it also could be <laughs> just like another high flying bird. But it's got Adam it Sandler, be. so it's got to be. It's got to be great. And yeah, this is a great pick. I actually didn't consider Sandler, but like if I would, I would have probably said he would be more of a George, but like as a Ricky, that, that is, that is something else. I think he's got to go with the Howard Ratman glasses though. We got to bring back the glasses and the chain. Ricky Roma wears glasses as he walks in the office the next day. All right. So I, I had two uh, for Ricky Roma. My favorite one is uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, I okay. think he's he's got the aura, he's got the persona. Um, it because uh, Ricky Roma has this cockiness about him, and he speaks differently than anybody else in it. Like his dialogue is different, his cadence is different, and I think Downey knows how to pull that off and bring that. So that was one. The other one I thought would be really interesting is someone like Idris Elba. Yeah, he he does have that sort of boss attitude he brings more of like the suave to it though where where downy 
feels more like he he could be the slimy salesman that comes off as cool. I would go with Elba. I think after Molly's game is kind of a Ricky Roma type performance, and I, I, that I could see that a lot. Yeah, I think Robert Downey Jr. would make it too much of a gimmick. He'd have too many, you know, quirks. I mean, but Ricky Roma is a quirky character. So I mean, just, just the I mean, just the way Pacino plays it, and the way he 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 just. He has, yeah, his cadence is just so odd in this, and you need someone that has that 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 uh that vibe to him. Okay, Shelly the Machine Levine, brought to us like we said by Jack Lemon, Todd. So coming up with somebody who, to be Shelly, you have to be really full of life and but feel like your best days are behind you. In Jack Lemon, of course, I would get absolutely un- unbelievable in this movie. The one thing I kept thinking of was like, who could get that level of likability while still being a slimy character? And that's the one and only Christoph Waltz. <laughs> and I, once I thought that, I was like, this is the only casting I can come up with. Christoph Waltz would absolutely be the tragic version of Shelley while also being be, being able to describe like his old war stories to Ricky. Like a I think it'd be perfect. Wow. Did not think of that. Christoph Waltz and Jamie Foxx <laughs> together. So no, Again, no, no. Who, who's Leo in this movie? Williamson? Uh, all right, Zach, who do you have? All right. Well, kind of going off that, I'm gonna I'm going to play my cards here in a second. Uh, I really had three options for uh for Shelly the Machine Levine. Uh, my first option was Judd Hirsch. Because he's now back, you know. Um, Has I also, he ever been the main character in anything? Uh, that's a great question. His number one, well, Taxi, right? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I thought about Judd Hirsch. Then I thought about uh, the greatest uh, movie neighbor of all time, John Amos. Um, because God knows he needs a comeback role. But I think after long and hard thinking about it, we're going to go with a man who we love on this podcast so much that we've named an award after him, the High Roller Award, and that is none other than Wayne Diamond. Because Wayne Diamond has only been in one movie, and that is Uncut Gems. And uh, according to his Instagram, uh, first of all, uh, not a fan of Trump, so I, I like him already. And, um, you know, great fashion icon, connoisseur, and uh, he's old and white and he's got white hair and he can play the role and he's immediately sympathetic and we love him for it and i can't wait to see the costumes he'd wear and the suntan and the teeth and uh i would be let the, he, he could bring it let's do it wayne diamond slash the high roller as the high roller shelly but he's not a high roller in this movie but maybe three years ago he was a high roller shelly the machine levine wow uh all right better than christoph vaults come on no, Christoph Waltz is a great choice. There, there's, there's, so. there's only one the acting for chops. This. Wayne Diamond, Christoph Waltz. I mean, I think it's, it's no, no question. Go there, ahead. There's only, there's only one answer for this. And once I thought of, thought of him, it was like I couldn't get it out of my head. And then I had trouble like distinguishing. Like I, I almost was like, he almost, he acts like Jack Lemon. Like his, his acting style is very similar to Jack Lemon. This is Brian Cranston. I mean, Shelly the Machine yeah. Levine is Brian Cranston. And and just start thinking about it. Like, Jack Lemon 
and Brian Cranston, like they their faces like contort the same way. They use the same face, the the same like hand hand gestures. I mean, they, it's more Walter White than Brian Cranston, but yeah, the like the like yeah. Like, like, can, can you, I can see and he Cran- would be in. He would be in a, a modern Glengarry Glen Ross for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I could see. Can can't you see Cranston standing there? And go, oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah. See, but that, that's Walter White. That's not Brian Cranston. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, but but it got to a point where the, like they were kind of one and the same for a while there. So I mean, no, it it, it works. It it works way too well. Way way too well. And and as the more I kept thinking about, it, like I just kept on seeing like. Jack Lemon's face on Brian Cranston. I couldn't get it out of my head, and it was weird. That that's not bad. That's actually pretty realistic. Yeah. <laughs> but see, listen. Okay, so I'll I'll be serious for a second. There is okay. Shelley Levine has a look that only Jack Lemon and one other actor can bring, and it's based on the suspenders. Can you think of the <laughs> only other actor in existence who could wear suspenders and a shirt like that? And it's it's an obvious answer to me, but maybe you guys don't see it. It's Anthony Hopkins. Like he has the same <laughs> posture as Anthony Hopkins does with the puffed up chest and the belly, but like the back kind of curved in, holding the cup of coffee. Now it's, maybe it's an Hopkins, old man look. Yeah. Yeah, it's an old man look. Maybe Anthony Hopkins is too old at this point, but like Anthony Hopkins could get the posture correct. And I I saw a lot yeah, of Hopkins, Hopkins a contemporary of Lemon. Like they he would have been right at that time, not this time though. Yeah. It would it, I mean if this was made like 10 or 20 years ago, Anthony Hopkins would be a great pick. Oh, and, and here's the other thing. Cranston is only a year younger than Jack Lemon was when this movie was made. Yep. There you go. There you go. All right, George Aronow, Raphael Anakin, Todd, who do you got? Okay, well, so we'll say so. After I came up with my casting, I found this screen rant thing that was if that Glencare was made with an all female cast, and I, I should actually be reading these off as we go along because a couple of yes. them were pretty good. Shelley, they have as Catherine O'Hara, which is which is actually pretty spot on. Uh, Roma, they have as Reese Witherspoon, which is a little strange, but I can see it. <coughs> Aronel, they have Regina Hall, which is not a great choice. Like, could they have some better ones for later? Uh, so Aronel, it's the 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 ability of Alan Arkin to turn his weird like inflection into something that makes sense is really rare. And the only thing I could think of for somebody like that in modern day around that age is Charlie Day. Like, can you imagine? Like, say like, who? They still phones, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> like this is this is a Charlie Day performance through and through. He is the next Alan Arkin. He should be an Oscar winner. There we go. Screw it. Oh, that was a beautiful Charlie Day impression, Todd. I like it. I like it. Thank you. It's not hard doing a Charlie Day impression. Just you know, <laughs> lift your voice a few few yeah, octaves. Yeah, but but going for it. <laughs> I rarely ever do that. <laughs> True. You do. you do. Zach, who do you have? Uh, I my only uh, qu- criteria was someone who could say Gustavo tactics or my dog Jesse. And uh, that is obviously <laughs> the one and only Mr. Eric Bogosian, because God knows he needs more roles. Yeah. And uh, he's played a milk toast before in a movie we like, and so he could do it again in this movie, and he'd, he'd kick ass at it. Kind of the easiest role to recast in some ways. So so my pick, it, it's, it's a little out there, but I could see it working. I went with Steve Carell. 
See, I, yeah, I, I, I had Paul Rudd written down. Like, it's you need, gotta be a you need the lovable right? loser, right? Because he, because he's yeah. the loser of the group. Well, what about Steve Carell as Ricky though? Like, that was the more interesting one for me. Like, I think we've seen no, Steve Carell. I, I, I can never see. I can never see that kind of persona. Maybe in that that movie um, with uh, the kid on the beach with Tony Collette. What that movie called? Um, the way way back. Yes, exactly. That's the only time I've ever seen him with that kind of per- persona. I think he breaks out the fake nose from that Olympic movie he made, and, and he could Fox do Ricky Catcher? Roma. Yeah, Foxcatcher. I mean that that is his Oscar nomination. All right, Dave Moss, played by Ed Harris. Todd. Uh, so I had two actors, and for me, they're kind of the same in this sense. Uh, one of which we've seen play a salesman in a deep dive really recently. That's Barry Pepper. But I had to go with <laughs> yes. the one that is better at the uh, exploding um, personality. You know, I'm not. I'm. I'm going. I'm not. I'm going home. No, I'm not. I'm going to Wisconsin. It's Ben Foster. Ben Foster and Barry Pepper, Todd actors through and through, and that is a performance I love from Ed Harris, and uh, both of them would e- be equally great. Yeah, I'll go next because I had Ben Foster written down too. No one throws Thank a tantrum quite like Ben Foster. And uh, that that's really what it's all about. Someone who's got a short fuse that can fly off the handle at any moment. It, it You need a Ben Foster in that role. All right, Zach, what do you got? I, I agree for, for all those reasons. That's why I went with Keith William Richards. I mean, sh- short fuse, blonde hair. He's way too old. Like, he's like 70. Is he? We're looking this up. Definitely looks it. Screen Ramp, by the way, has Taraji P. Henson, which I think is the best casting. That like that's I, pretty good. Like, I almost wanted to just put her on there, just because like you've got the memory of a fucking fly. Like that, that is, <laughs> I could Taraji P. Henson would deliver that line with needles. What about what about Lakeith Stanfield? Is that a better pick for Dave? No, he's way too young. It doesn't list Keith William Richards's age on IMDb, so I think too old is just not. There's no there's no basis behind it. He's timeless. I think he looks a little like Ed Harris. Why not have Tilda Swinton then? Yeah, well, you know, after Orlando, <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay, there we go. All right, John Williamson, brought to us by Kevin Spacey. Todd, who do you got? This one was actually really difficult. Uh, I said. I said Dave Franco, because, like, at, at this time, like, Kevin Spacey was only 32, 33. So actors in that age range that could be that dry while also being kind of, like, snarky. Like, I, I was down to, like, Michael Sarah and Dave Franco. And I, I think Dave Franco has a little bit more of, of the buttoned-up <laughs> look and could actually stand up a little bit to the other actors. I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know either. Like, it's because it was it wasn't easy. Yeah, I like my pick better. Zach, who from Uncut Gems did you pick for this? I went with Benny Safdie, guy with glasses. Got... It's actually not bad. Thank you. It's way better than it's... Dave Franco. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. Like, like think know. think Benny Safdie and Licorice Pizza. Yeah, that's like, a very that's... Williamson role. It, that 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 fits really well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I I went with Jesse Plemons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he obviously he could play any he of these roles at any he's... time in his life, but 
Can we outlaw Jesse Plemons from getting recast? Let's just do. We're, we're, we got to be done with Jesse Plemons at this. But Keith Stanfield too, then, because I mean, this I, is I like the perfect Jesse Plemons role because he has everything to be able is a perfect be, Jesse Plemons but, role. But he he's perfect at being. He's the doormat, but he also can have a spine if he has to. That I mean, that's Williamson. And, and it would actually, uh, he'd actually work perfectly. You guys just aren't a fan of Dave Franco. Dave Franco is, is the worst possible pick. Name any other actor and it would be better than Dave Franco. I think, Williamson has, I think Williamson has to be taller than five foot three. Um, yeah. What, is that how short Dave Franco is? I, that's what, I, I don't know if that's actually how short he is, but he feels like that. Okay. He, Dave Franco is a horrible pick. He's the Muggsy Bogues of actors. Um, all right. How about, um, I just thought, of, how about Haley Joel Osment? I mean, he's around the right age, but better than Dave Franco. Oh, all right. How about Blake, played by Alec Baldwin? Todd. There's another role that is not entirely easy to recast. Like Alec Baldwin has that he's done that several times. Like Screen Red has Rachel McAdams written down, which I actually like. That's weird. I said Sebastian Stan because he's in everything and he's at that point sort of where early 90s Alec Baldwin was where it's like he's like sort of blowing up. He's sort of in everything. He's a leading man type, but he's never had uh, the really scene soon role. It's going to give him an Oscar nomination. Obviously, it took a bit for Baldwin too, but I think Sebastian Stan would absolutely blow you off the screen if he was to berate everybody the way that Alec Baldwin did. Yeah, that's not bad. I, I didn't I would I didn't know if he had the intensity to be able to pull that off though. Like you need that that intensity and charisma to pull off to pull off that that whole monologue. So um but that's not bad. That's not bad. I might actually like yours more, better than mine, but we'll see. Zach. I went with the great greatest motivational speaker of all time, which is the one and only Doc Rivers. Um come in at halftime, get those guys motivated and uh you know, seal seal the win, seal the victory. You can't have somebody who's going to go horse like three seconds in. Like, <laughs> have you ever heard Doc Rivers not sound like he has been screaming for too long? I want to hear Terry's pick, and then I'll make the pick that Terry should have made because he's going to forget about this actor. But go ahead, Terry. I went with Shia LaBeouf. He's canceled, though. Although this I one was canceled, too, so... Shia LaBeouf would be interesting. I'm not sure it entirely works. I don't think he has the ability to look like he just came from Mitch and Murray, but see, that, that's I could the thing see him he delivering the, the role. look to him, but he could deliver the hell out of that. Child of yeah, is a better Dave. Can I tell you the actor you should have picked Terry? Oh, Peter Dinklage. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he basically did it in elf. I mean, that is about as close to Blake as you can get. I mean, it would put a whole new perspective on the, on can, on them looking can i tell you i still scoffing can at him i can still remember to this day terry's greatest recasting of all time which was hannibal lecter as peter, peter dinklage. dinklage that is brilliant <laughs> that you can't even put words into how brilliant that recasting was how about instead of let's say let's make a rule no more jesse plemons and we have to cast peter dinklage <laughs> every one of our recastings so so who would and, Nicholas Cage and who would uh who would peter Wait, we're not we're not doing james link Oh well, uh, no! I'm I'm just I'm just saying we should add in who would Nicolas Cage play and who would oh. uh, and who would uh, Peter Dinklage play? Okay, James Link. 
who apparently his last name is spelled L-I-N-G-K, according to uh, IMDb. I don't know what that's all about. Uh, brought to us by Jonathan Price. Todd? Well, Screen Rant has Melanie Linsky, which is pretty good. It, this is like sort of a mopey character, somebody who isn't exactly strong and like not, not sure of themselves. For me, Jerry Baruchel would be fascinating oh, to watch. that's good. In a play, I don't think I don't know if he actually does stage acting at all, but I think it'd be I think it'd be absolutely brilliant to see him, especially going toe to toe with Ricky at the end, where well he he's so timid. Ricky is trying is like still slinging his sail. Jay Baruchel with Jamie Foxx or Josh Brolin. That's that's a great that that's your best recasting so far. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Zach, I went with Kevin Garnett. Because if you're going to bring someone in as a customer, <laughs> someone who you're trying to sell something to, someone who's a bit naive, someone who's maybe going to overspend money that they regret later, uh, no one does it better than Kevin Garnett. Trusting, a little bit, little bit arrogant maybe. But I then... really wish you would have taken it a little bit more seriously because I would have been curious to see what you came up with. But I, I respect your, well, your effort. I will say Jay Baruchel is a very inspired pick. So I, I I will defer to that. That that's actually kind of hard to imagine top, topping. Can you think of anyone that's better than that, Terry? So I I I do like mine. I think one of the things um, Jay Baruchel's good, um, but one of the things I think that you get from Jonathan Price and that that uneasiness and that mopiness is the fact that he's British, and I mean he's playing an American, but he's British, isn't he? Right? You, Jonathan Price is a, is a Brit. I think I, I honestly he? don't know. Anyways, I went to Andrew Scott. Um, I thought I think he would be is. a he'd be a good a good link, and and it just kind of that he could bring him out that you know emotional insecurity that um that Who's you get Andrew often Scott? from. He's he the, is. He's the priest in um, Fleabag. Uh, Fleabag. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the priest in Fleabag. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He's one of those guys that when you see him, you go, "Oh, that guy." But uh, you may not realize his name is Andrew Scott. But Andrew Scott, I think he'd be good. Look him up. You'll know who he That's is. That's not bad. That's not bad. All right. Who would Nicolas Cage play? Depends on what time of his life. That's what I was thinking. Okay, I think at different points in Nick Cage's career, he could have played every single person in this. Maybe not Shelly. I think he could in, be Shelly right now. Like or in 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 ten years, yeah. He, I think he he would be. So a great what version of him years. is the best? George, um, <clears throat> I, th- I think George and Ricky are the two that would be easiest for him to step into. I think. No, I I think I think mid nineties. He's Dave. He's Moss. They, that's the Weatherman uh, Nick Cage. I think that's more like mid two thousands Nick Cage. No, you put him in like his his crazy freak out like. Um, Vampire's Kiss that and and uh, Deadfall that's that's Moss, but that's too young then. He's only in his twenties then. I, I I okay. This is a serious pick. Why not the detective? <laughs> He's played detectives in movies before. He was a detective in Port of Call, New Orleans. I think I think if I think you could have easily swapped out Kevin Spacey and put in uh, put in Nick Cage as Williamson when this was originally made. That's true. It'd be hard to see him as Blake. I, I I don't know if he could ever be that much of a, like a hard ass. 
I don't think I've ever seen him be that. What like it? What about like his Snake Eyes persona? I mean, he that's more that's more like Ricky though. Like that that's more like he's the coolest person in the room kind of thing. Not like I'm. I don't know. Blake is a, is a very specific persona. I don't think I've ever seen Nick Cage do that. But, I mean, I guess Snake Eyes is, is an okay example. Alright. Let's get let's get into this. Highest war. Highest war of the movie. Um, I'll go first. I'm going Pacino. I think Pacino had the highest war. Most irreplaceable. Uh, and, and like I was saying, when I was recasting him, just the cadence that he brings to it. And, I mean, he just sounds different than everybody else. For the simple fact that he's Pacino, um, and uh, and it it has an effect on the rest of the movie, in that he is able to bring something different than everyone else is bringing, and uh, and it is so uniquely Pacino that it made it really hard to find someone else to to fit in that that bubble. So that's my pick, Todd. Who do you have? I mean. This is not, I mean, it's not easy. I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Alan Arkin. And it, the reason wow. is because he has, so there's something about him that is irreplaceable. And it, I mean, it's maybe his voice, maybe it's his mopiness. Maybe it's just like the way he carries himself. <laughs> it, it, there's something about Alan Arkin that is different. And that character is my favorite character to quote, my favorite character to mimic. Like everything about George is, is, is what I love about this movie. And, Alan Arkin is it's because it's him I, I like there's no other actor at that time that would have done that and made that character feel that way I mean Alan Arkin is kind of in this very specific like tier of acting that like him and Christopher Walken are like the only ones in in that every performance they have they make so much them be just because of how they talk and who they are that's that, why I yeah. said Charlie Day he's the only yeah. younger person that could be that i don't know man i think there were a lot of actors in the 90s that could have played that role and did play that role in movies and like one of my questions watching this movie is how was william h macy not in this movie he did a, he did several mammoth movies and i think he would have been a great george era oh, too young i don't know if he was actually acting in the movies yet well oh, i meant i meant afterwards like state and maine and a couple right. other ones but um but yeah williamson too yeah he could have been williamson and i also think giamatti you know why not or, or philip seymour mm -hmm. hoffman um, but I, I understand, like, I think Al Arkin has a unique skill set and it is hard to see anyone else as it, but I don't know. I, I, I think for me, it's, I, I, I mean, we got to go with Jack Lemon. Someone has to make the case for Jack Lemon because I think he has the most memorable presence in this movie. And as we talked about, it's, it's the only person with, with whose body posture you can remember from this movie. And, uh, you know, you want to like him, you want to sympathize with him because he's Jack Lemmon and he's play, he's he's the most iconic everyman possibly in movie history. And so you really can't replicate that with anyone else. And that only makes it all the more kind of shocking and like brutal when, it you know, we find out what he does in this movie to try to uh, not just that that he, sto he stoops to that level, but that he also flashes it in Williamson's face <laughs> for the last half hour of this movie. That level of shock, I don't think you can replicate with another actor, um, you know, of, of, of his stature in 1992. Yeah, I thought about saying Jack Lemmon until I thought that of how perfectly Brian Cranston could slide into those shoes and, and portray him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that I found someone that could replace him 
quite adequately. So, but yeah, in 1992, I, I think you're absolutely right. Maybe right. maybe Hume Croyon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill Paxton Memorial Worst Performance of Ooh, the yes. of the movie award goes to who's act. Worst performance of the movie, I think, uh, goes to, uh, well, I mean, I guess there's not a lot of choice here. <laughs> Let's go with, uh, I don't know. Is Jonathan Price really that great? I mean, he is. He is really that well, great. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, you're going to say everybody's great, but like, I don't know. To me, he's just kind of like, he's there in a couple scenes. He's the foil for Ricky Roma. He just kind of sits there and stares at him. And again, it's not a bad performance, but like, when he stammers on in the office, it's pretty pathetic. And I guess that's who his character is, but it's like, I don't know. I, I honestly, I'd forgotten that he was in this movie until I started rewatching it. So maybe that is the biggest sign that it's the, the, you know, worst performance in the movie in a movie with seven characters. Uh, and by the way, Jonathan price is Welsh. So I was right. Um, I, I went with, uh, I went with, Jude Cicciolella as the detective because he's he's horrible. Uh, uh, La Lavine, Lavine, is is this Rick? Levine? He's not gonna be able to help you, dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean he, he's he, he's the one that just feels like completely just reading off lines and uh, doesn't quite fit with the rest. So I'm that's who I went with. Todd. Well, see, I'm in this weird situation where I think all of these performances are Oscar worthy. And I said Alan Arkin is the highest war, but I'm also going to say he's also the worst performance because he, which I don't think that's ever been done, but he, he is distracting. He's distracting in how, how different he is than everybody else. He doesn't belong in that office. And I mean, and I don't know, maybe that, maybe that in, in a sense is a problem with the casting, but I mean, it's Alan Arkin. And he at no point that feels like a salesman on the level of even even Moss, who who would just seems like seems like you would just bite your head off or something if you weren't going to buy his real estate. But I mean, I, I Alan Arkin is wrong for that office, but he's also great and he's also probably the worst. I mean, like I said, the one time we actually see him try to sell something, he says the wrong name. So I mean, yeah, that's true. But is that yeah is that a bad performance or is that just just a bad character. I don't know. I'm Amazing either. Larry, Big Tim, High Roller Award for the best minor character goes to who, Todd? I mean, there aren't a lot of minor characters. I, I was going to say the detective just because <laughs> he, he has to do a lot with basically nothing. He has like five lines. I mean, I think he like says them all like at least ten times. But he ha like, he stands there and he's, and he's interesting. He's just like, all right, next person. But I want to know what goes beyond what happening behind those doors because everyone walks out. They're just like, "What an asshole!" I, I can't imagine that character like treating them to the point that, that like he's comparing it to like Nazi tactics. You know, like I want to know what happens beyond like beyond that door, and uh, I, and he's the one doing it. And so, or is it the other guy? Because there is another detective. There is another guy in there, but I don't think it's good cop, bad cop. I think like all the guys just in there for security reasons. So arrest Shelley essentially or or is williamson the bad cop because he's always in there too well williamson can't be a bad cop he's too much of a like a i don't know a little bitch <laughs> <laughs> all right zach uh my biggest douchebag uh, no, you, no no you're right. I, uh, oh. minor character 
Oh, minor character. Okay. Uh, minor character. Um, gosh. You know who it is. It's Mr. Spanel, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I, I was going to save him. But I was going to save him for another award. Okay. <laughs> He's not a stick man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his wife's at the PTO. They got kids, you know. He's he's getting it in. Um, I guess I'll go. I guess I'll go with um, minor character. Gosh, you said this was the funnest one to come up with. Not the minor character award. That's what you said. Well, I had I had some others. I guess I guess we can go with Blake. No, I mean, he, isn't he a minor character? If he isn't that the definition of a minor character, he's only in one scene. And since he does, you know, have the most iconic, <laughs> memorable presence in the whole movie, doesn't that, by definition, make him the most memorable yes. minor character? So I think just by the definition of the award, we have to go with Blake, even though that's not his name. Yeah, not according to him. Uh, all right, my, my minor character is uh, Jerry Graff. Yeah, oh, I have. Nice. Uh, he's yeah. I I wanted to talk about Jerry Graff at some point because because I mean he's kind of genius on on his tactics here. I mean, the whole scheme about buying a list of nurses it, it, contact information and using them to start his business that's pretty genius. Um and uh, yeah, no he he's he he's a smart guy. I mean, anyone that feels like they can control Dave Moss is a uh, is uh is worth praising. So. He's, Jerry, he's my minor character. Jerry Graff, Jerry Graff was my biggest stick man. Oh, there you go. That's what I had go. written down too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I had I had Ricky Roma written down because I mean he someone who's that smooth of a talker, you know, he's he's got to. He's gotta be. Yeah, where he pulls out, he's like, This is Florida bullshit. But this, let me tell you a story about this. Like, he can talk his way in anything. I mean, he does have women bringing him cafe au lait. That's impressive. Okay, so that, that takes care of our, our, our stick man. Now let's go to the Billy Bats Douchebag Award. And uh, I'll, I'll go first on this. I, I mean, this is one that the list is long and distinguished mm. um, of who, who the douchebag is. However, I'm going to go a little outside the box here. I'm going to say the biggest douchebag of the movie is Williamson. And yeah. I mean, <clears throat> he he's, he's the doormat of the office. He knows he's the doormat of the office. But if you look at the end there first, he screws up the sale because he doesn't know the shot. And, and for everything that Roma tells him off for. And then you find out at the end that he was intentionally screwing over Levine. Like he, he purposefully gave him the Nyborgs knowing that he was never going to get, never going to be able to sell them, them something. But at the and, same time he did. And he never made it seem like that in front of everybody. Like, I mean, what, why don't Ricky or Moss know the Nyborgs? Like, are they just like stroking his ego? Because they had to have come across the same thing. Like he said, like they've had him for four months. But yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I mean, I, in general, I agree. But I, I don't. I don't think the Nyborgs have anything to do with his douchiness. But I, I mean, he knew. He knew when he gave him that card. He knew he was giving him a dead, and he knew he was giving him a dud. And he'd been and he'd been going along with the fact he knew that all these were duds. And he went along with it and said, "No, you should be able to sell this stuff." When it was his job to kind of like stand up for him, like, "No, no, no, we need something better than this." He's like, no, 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 your job's on the line and you need to go try and sell to this person that if you even do sell, I know it won't count. 
So screw you because I don't like you. So yeah, and he would only take the cash up front. He wouldn't even take partial of it, even though he could just like, you know, he's the head of the office. He could take it from his paycheck or something. He is a total douchebag. And yeah, I agree. It's a great choice. It, 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 he, he never has so little power gone, gone to your head before. What, what's that a quote from? I, I can't remember. It's a quote from something. Uh, all right, Todd, what do you got? I mean, everyone's a douchebag, really. Maybe except for George, but I mean, maybe still. I don't know. I mean, I'd say Shelly <coughs> is yeah. a pretty big douchebag. And it's mainly because he has a really big mouth and he's the one who doesn't admit to that. Like everyone else says, you know, like even Moss is like, he's like, oh, shit, I can't even go in there. I have a big mouth. Like, I'm going to, I mean, there's no way. I, I've already spoken out on too much. Shelly's the one who's like, doesn't know that he, he's trying to be the bully but he is really just sort of a joke and but he actually talks himself into problems because that's the way he is and um you know i mean it's a dude it's it's a he's a douchebag maybe not as big as william somebody's a douchebag all right all right yeah i i mean the fact that he can't shut up is what got him and got him caught I mean, it was done. It was over with. And then he had to keep going. Yeah. Like, I was a great salesman back in 87, 88, 89, right? Maybe I was <laughs> second best. I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't third best. I was second best. Yeah. Zach, what do you got? I mean, this movie is, uh, you know, it's, it's 27 Yankees of douches. I mean, we could go with Pacino. We could go with Ed Harris. We could go with Williamson. We could go with anybody. But there is one above all that stands above all else very distinguished in his douchiness and that is one mr david mamet who recently said that all male teachers are pedophiles and uh of course he said this on the joe rogan podcast and he talked about how the left is a death cult and he actually has a play about a college professor who's denied tenure because uh, the female student accuses him of sexual harassment and uh he's a total hypocrite and a douchebag so i think that the argument ends there ends there he he uh he transcended all of his characters congratulations david mamet biggest douche i mean he's I mean, not in the movie but <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> I think he is in the movie. I think he's all of those characters' uh, biggest douchey uh, attributes, all in one person. And you, you chose that over Spacey, who they actually oh, could say, go with like, Spacey it second. doesn't matter whose dick you're sucking. Yeah, you don't think that rang, rang true in 2022, but okay. We could, we could go with, with Spacey second, for sure. Zach, what's the best <laughs> scene in the movie? Okay, here we go. Now we're getting to the good part. Now we're getting to my real favorite character in this movie, Mr. Spinell. Everybody's going to choose the Alec Baldwin scene, but I really do like the scene with my best supporting actor, 2003, Bruce Altman. And, uh, you know, that's a great <coughs> moment in the movie because, first of all, it's, it's one of the few scenes in the movie that is outside the office in the restaurant. So it feels like something special and different. And it's, it's mostly one long take, which is great. You see some of uh, Jack Lemmon's best acting in that scene as he tries haplessly to pull what we would call a Ricky Roma on this guy and fails miserably. Uh, the guy does not buy it at all. And I don't know if you guys felt the same thing, but as I was watching that scene, especially when he's trying to shoo him out, right, you can hear a faint ding in the background. 
the in a, a dinging that happens a few times it like repeats five or six times did I, any of you guys think like early paul thomas anderson in that like boogie nights paul thomas anderson like it felt like an early paul thomas anderson scene that had a lot of like hostility and tension to it and the dinging was like out of boogie nights or something and it was it was beautifully done and i really really liked that scene I don't know if I ever noticed that. I didn't notice it, but that is a good scene. That is a good scene. Muskie, Wisconsin. That's where it's at. Uh, all right, I'll go next. My my favorite scene uh, is when they first get back to the office in the morning, and and you have you have Roma freaking out that the place got robbed, and you have Shelley coming in. Uh, getting the or telling his war story you've got moss interrupting it all and freaking out and saying he's going to wisconsin i mean it, it felt like the 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 movie was kind of going at this pace and then all of a sudden you get here and everything just kind of ramps up a notch and everything just starts clicking in a way it hadn't clicked before and i just i just love that it, it's such a kinetic scene and and i mean you could say that scene lasts till the end of the movie but it's really just until he finishes up his his whole his whole uh, war story there, or or maybe when when um, when Link walks into the room, as you could say, is when it is when it finally wraps up. They go through this whole whole thing, and then Moss, I'm going home. No, I'm going to Wisconsin. And then he finally storms off and and tells them all off. You were saying, I mean, it, it's it is such a it, it, everything about that scene I love. And if I were to say one other one, it's the whole. Um, dialogue between uh moss and george are we talking about this we're actually talking about this because moss wasn't going to say a word about it and but george knew exactly what he was saying and he just kept on on saying the right thing until moss actually gave it all up and i, I thought that scene was really cool too. and we quote that all the time uh, what's we're actually we talking, talking about, about this? this we're talking about this yeah we do we do all right todd I mean, so you just took up like half the movie, but I mean, obviously the scene with Blake is is perfect. It's been goofed. I mean, there's like 10 classic lines in that. I mean, we could talk about that, but my favorite is Moss's farewell to the troops, which is the perfect way to describe it by Ricky. He's like, he's like, what is this? Farewell, is this to, the farewell? The farewell to the troops? I mean, because he had no reason to still be there. Like, like he, he just is like, he's like, I can't believe they talked to me like that. He's like, I'm going home. And he's like, no, I'm going to go on a sit. Or he's like, no, I'm going to keep... Like he, he's just like, he's just trying so hard to not give up his position that he ends up staying there and completely screaming at everybody for no reason, making it even more suspicious. But it, it's a great scene. And Ed Harris is on fire. I thought for sure he was going to be your guys' worst performance because he's he way over the top. He might literally be on fire at that moment. He might be. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Fire starter level kind of thing. But like he... <laughs> Like everything he says, just like, man, this is one guy who's got so much pent up anger. And I love that scene. And I love him. I love how Pacino's just sitting there, just like taking it and then still giving the wisecracks, which, which is what the most magical part of that is just, he's like, oh my God, you are just so like, how fuck up you are. You know, like, it's <laughs> like those guys are absolutely living in that scene. I love it. That's my favorite part of the movie. I thought you were going to say Ed Harris is on fire. No, 
They did. They did pretty quote much, pretty much. Uh, your pants are on fire in uh, Firestarter, by the way. Damn which it, I thought about the day. <laughs> <laughs> I had it that written down together. as my quote of the day. Liar, liar. I, I, your pants. Two weeks in a row. I've taken it from are you. Are on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Uh, if there were a sequel, it would be called Boiler Room. <laughs> or taste. basically yeah that, that, that's an extended tape. universe maybe a maybe a prequel called the machine see now that's interesting see i mean that'd be early yeah. christoph waltz and and watch him watch him uh watch him mentor ricky roma that i like that could be interesting okay Oh, Todd, do you have anything else? No, I, I didn't have anything else written down. That was this is like the first movie I haven't had any ideas for a spin-off or sequel. All right. Flaws, anything outdated or conspiracy theories? I have a conspiracy theory. Okay. It's more it's more of just a question. And I noticed it this time. What else is in Blake's briefcase? Because right now we know of three things that are in his briefcase. A set <laughs> of steak knives, the Glengarry leads, and brass balls. Does what I mean? Did he bring a briefcase just to bring steak knives, leads, and brass and brass balls? That is a great question. (laughs) I should have had that as a trivia question. (laughs) I know, I know. I mean, I mean, is this the same briefcase that holds Marcellus Wallace's soul? Yes. (laughs) Ving Rhames. Stanley Tucci was was the cop. Um, (laughs) Irving Rhames. That, that was that was oh, the big thing I had. It's like what what else is in that briefcase? Or did he did he just bring it to be, you know, prop man Gallagher in his speech? So <laughs> <laughs> like I this, normally this have thing. a couple of things to say. Like uh one, uh Kevin Spacey was only thirty-three and he already has a comb over. Like if you ever want to know <laughs> why, like the younger gener or like older generations look older than yours is because of that. Like, I mean, he already had a comb over. And uh, also, I think it's really strange that they brought Blake down to give a speech to three people. He couldn't just wait for the fourth person in the office. It's, it's already weird that there were only four people there, but like he's given a speech to three people, giving like his, you know, his Oscar speech to three fucking people. And uh, Ricky Roma, he is so far ahead of the other ones. Why are they even keeping the other two, three, and four, or even number two? Why are they keeping number two? Like Ricky is five times ahead of number two i want to i want to know what the, that meeting was like in mitch and murray where they're like we'll give a set of steak knives and keep their job to number two when it's like you know fifteen thousand. if paul giamatti had been cast as Aaron now he would have said i would rather have the knives yes uh okay i had a a few things so this is taken directly from my notes i wrote opening titles look a little like a wesley snipes action movie with horrible rolf wolfy imitation music um and a little like leaving las vegas and also a little like speed but you know yeah yeah yeah, so yeah um (laughs) i was wondering what movie dave went to go see what do we think in 1992 (laughs) he would have checked out Maybe, maybe a few good men Maybe with that amount of rain, it would have been Batman Forever. Batman Returns. Batman, Batman Returns, Returns, I mean. 92. Yes. 
maybe a Muppet Christmas Carol. But you well, said what it was it? you said it was September. September. Yeah, we should right. really actually look this up. Terry, look up September up. 1992 up. movies. Um, I like Spider Man. <laughs> So Jack Lemon says, if anyone calls, I'm at the office when he's at the Chinese restaurant at the beginning of the movie, clearly in view of Jonathan Price. And yet we're expected to believe that he's supposed to be the, the client at the end of the movie. Like, didn't he see the dude there? But maybe. Yeah, that's, I mean, I thought about that, too, but I don't think that's, maybe that's necessarily flaw. Like, maybe that's just they just don't care, you know, um, maybe. I thought I thought Dave's order at Zanny's was very interesting. Two regular and two chocolate donuts. Um, I, I I I I I think there's some psychology there that I'm not quite understanding. Isn't that what he orders in Monsters Ball? Like just chocolate ice cream and yeah, it's ice cream. <laughs> okay. And then I wrote down Madonna, and I have no idea why. I'm trying to remember what the connection was with Madonna. They don't talk about Madonna's music videos at the beginning of the movie. That's it in Reservoir Dogs. Why did I write down Madonna is a is a conspiracy theory. I really don't know what I, I wrote it down the first time I watched it. Uh, I don't know. Can you guys think what did Madonna have to do with this movie? Nothing. Maybe Sean Penn yeah. should have been in it. Yeah, maybe maybe or there's like a Warren Beatty connection. I'm not sure. If you think of it, let me know. All right, you're ready for the box office from September 1992? Yes. Okay, so number one was Sneakers. Oh. That seems like a Dave movie. Yeah. Number yeah. two was Honeymoon in Vegas. Number three, Unforgiven. <laughs> number four, Single White Female. Number five, Sister Act. Number six, The Last of the Mohicans. Number seven, Captain Ron. There number we eight, go. Beth Becomes Her. Number nine, A League of Their Own. And number 10, Pet Cemetery 2. Wow, those I are actually really like significant movies in the grand scheme of things over the last 30 years that's interesting <laughs> yeah yeah he would have gone gone and seen sneakers i think captain ron or i captain mean if you're ron. looking for a great time you know and how how late was he <laughs> staying awake i mean that movie had to be going pretty late and and como's had to be open pretty late too well, th that's part of what I was saying. I don't understand the timeline necessarily because, like, when did Blake give that speech? Was that like at like two p.m.? It was already dark, but I mean, it is like a time when it gets dark early. So, how much time really was after? And when would Williamson have ever gone back to the office in order to get contracts from somebody who closed it late at night at a bar that was probably at almost a closing? Like, I, the timeline is it, it's iffy at best. You got no, no no response no 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 theories there, Terry. No, no, I don't. I, it I agree. It does get dark it, it here in the sense. Midwest, you know, when it storms out, but not that dark. Yeah. I mean, so almost that was at five. They went out to a bar afterwards, and he was talking to Link for hours. You would assume hours, and Williamson was really going to go back at like what eleven p.m. And when was he bringing a break in to go steal the leads then with Williamson? I don't know. It doesn't quite make sense. Oh. I, okay, I remembered why I wrote down Madonna. Can I tell you? <laughs> yes. Okay, so Madonna... The world needs to know. Madonna was on... Uh, before Madonna had her infamous David Letterman appearance in 1994, she, her first appearance on Letterman was with uh, Sandra Bernhardt in 1988, and she was starring in David Mamet's play on Broadway, Speed the Plow, uh, which I've never seen or really heard much of. And Madonna trashed David Mamet. She said she hated doing it. 
on on the David Letterman show. Speed so, the Plow is that is that like a prequel to to Speed and Speed Two? I think so. I think maybe that's that was my connection to it. You know, Dennis Hopper play, placed a bomb on a plow first to make sure it would work, and then he put it on the bus. I think that yes, yeah. What was uh was Speed the Plow run by Leon the Pig Farmer? <laughs> <laughs> I think Leon the pig farmer used a speedy plow on his pig farm because he was Welsh, like Jonathan Price. There we go. There we go. Who started with Madonna in Avita? There we go. It all now makes we're sense. talking. Now it we're talking. All makes sense on Captain Ron's yacht. <laughs> uh, all right. LVP MVP. Uh, let's start with Todd. Uh, my LVP is Patel. <laughs> Just out <laughs> <Adoris>, like <laughs> because obviously. Uh, my MVP. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna say David Mamet because I just. I mean, I love. I love the dialogue. It hums in this movie, and uh, he probably should have directed it, but he didn't. But uh, it's a. It's my number one adapted screenplay of all time. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, more than the Godfather? Yeah, it's above the Godfather and Sideways. Wow. Zach, LVP, MVP. Um, L- uh, MVP was the rain operators on the set. <laughs> According to IMDb, the most money on the budget was for the rain effects in the first half of the film. So you got to think that's that's pretty exhausting work. And it looks pretty, pretty authentic to me. LVP of the movie, it's not really his fault, but James Foley. We, we don't think of this movie as a James Foley movie. I, I bet most people who've seen it think David Mamet directed it. And now James Foley is left to make the Fifty Shades Grey sequels. Uh, although, interestingly enough, on his IMDb, he did direct several Madonna music videos. So maybe there's another conspiracy theory. <laughs> not Speed the Plow, though. Not Speed the Plow. Uh, all right. My LVP, I have Mitch and Murray. Because, I mean, they, they kind of messed this whole thing up um, in, in so many different ways. And my MVP is George, because he's the only one that actually has a somewhat of a redemption arc in, in this whole thing. Even though he's still a douchebag. But he has a redemption arc. So, he's MVP. All right. Quote of the day. Um, so, I'll start. <clears throat> and mine was already taken, but I, I did have two written down. And so, my other one, I think fully describes this podcast and it comes from paranorman um and uh it's norman talking to uh i forget the kid's name but it's someone who's trying to be his friend and norman looks at him and says i like to be alone and the other kid says i do too let's do it together and i think that describes this podcast (laughs) (laughs) that's good that's deep yeah yeah (laughs) todd what do you got uh so I mean, the quote has been said, but there is another quote attached to it in a way. The The quote was, you know, never open your mouth until you know what the shot is, which when I hear that every time, because I've seen the other movie before I saw Glinker Gun Ross, that is uh, the girl next door. It is the Timothy Oliphant quote. Is the juice worth the squeeze? And I think it's the same quote. And I think it's said a little bit better in that way. It's like a gift. Like I can't control it. Exactly. Zach? Uh, my quote has sort of already been mentioned, but I'll mention it again. 
All train compartments smell, smell vaguely of shit. It gets so you don't mind it. That's the worst thing I can confess. I mean, we could say that about, you know, how Ricky Roma feels about his job. It's actually sort of a profound quote in a way. I think you could also describe it about this podcast because as bad as you think our podcast is, you just kind of get used to it and they all kind of smell vaguely like shit. So it just kind of all ends up the same. And that's the best thing you could say about us. I mean, there you go. There you go. What else can you say? Oh, before we go, I do have to say I would be really upset if we went through a whole deep dive of Glengarry Glen Ross and I didn't mention um, Williamson telling George to go to lunch three times because it's it's just <laughs> okay. great. And more iconic is the moment inside the actor's studio where the which you showed asked, me. Yeah, you where the student asked Kevin Spacey to tell to ask him to go to lunch three times. So. And it's on this DVD. And I did a little bit of deep diving. And the guy who asked the question ended up directing the Oscars. What? <laughs> That's amazing. What's his what, name? Uh, which Oscars? I can't remember. Shit. I, I had it looked up the other day. He's like, uh, maybe it wasn't the Oscars. It was like the Golden Globes or something. Like it, it was big. He didn't become an actor. He became a director of award ceremonies, although he hasn't done anything in 10 years. Uh, wow. Jeff. Okay, hold on. I'll look it up. I believe his name was Jeff Margolis. And uh, yes, that was one of the first things you ever showed me about uh, uh, this movie. Yeah, he did uh, mostly Golden Globes. 2013 Golden Globes, 2012 Golden Globes. Oh, he did the red carpet special, not the actual Golden Globes. My apologies. All right, so it went from the Oscars to the Golden Globes to the red carpet special, but it's still <laughs> impressive nonetheless. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's amazing. Jeff Margolis, MVP. One of the, one of the greatest highlights of Inside the Actor Studio too is is that that whole sequence, and he like has the the dialogue printed out, and and do I you like want to be Williamson? <laughs> you know, somebody asked me that, and I said yes. <laughs> It's great. It's great. All right. Well, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I still have the movie running. Uh, Roma's telling off Williamson right now before he goes into the office about, uh, you know, you, you, you know, don't uh, don't open your mouth till you know the shot that that's what's happening right now. Anyways, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.